Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another week of Ranching Reboot. This episode is sponsored by our generous patrons over on patreon.com forward slash Red Hills Rancher. This episode is also sponsored by Legends in Pratt, where we just came from having a wonderful lunch. If you're ever in Pratt and want a great burger and some good beer, go check out Legends. So today we're here in the Eastest Media Studio, and I have my friend Dr. Jeffrey Davis with us. And we've been riding around a little bit on the ranch this morning talking about cows and grass and, uh, and ecology. And well, Dr. Jeff, let's, let's get into you. So what do you do? What's your day job when you're not out here riding around looking at my cows? Yeah. So thank you for having me. This is actually the first podcast I've ever been on. So uh, hopefully I get it right. Um, so my, my background is in family medicine. Uh, My board certification uh, is as a family doc. And so I I always say that a family doc is someone who's kind of a, a jack of all trades, but master of none. You know, we're, we're really trained to, to take a high level view of a person's health. And, um, you know, we have certain areas of expertise that we get into and, um, but really touch on just about every part of human health you can think of, whether it's hormonal health, uh, whether it's nutrition, uh, cardiovascular health. Um, so that's, that's my general background where I come from. Um, about, about eight years ago, uh, I, I changed my focus and how I did my practice, how I, how I practiced my art, I guess you could say. Okay. I, I was seeing that I was giving people – the way I like to phrase this is I was using pill for problem, meaning that someone would come in with a complaint and I would match that complaint to a pill and give them a prescription and they would walk out. And I was rinsing and repeating that over and over again. What I, what I was feeling, though, is that I wasn't really helping people live healthier lives. And, and part of the problem, part of what's happened in medicine is that as we've gone down this third-party payer system, insurance companies are – they, they pull back on how much they're paying doctors, especially primary care. Um, we're kind of bottom of the barrel okay. when it comes to reimbursement. And so the way you, the way you fix that is in volume. So – you need to see, you know, a family doc back in the day, 10, 15 people would be a full day. Well, there's, there's family docs now that see 30, 40 a day. Wow. And I know that in one of the areas, uh, so my main clinic is in Wichita, Kansas, and then we have a, a satellite clinic in Hutchinson. And I know in Hutchinson, the, the large clinic in that town, their goal is to see a patient every seven and a half minutes. Seven and a half minutes. Seven and a half minutes. That sounds about like about how much time that I normally get to spend with my doctor. <laughs> yeah, in fact, when we when we opened that satellite, um, I remember a, a patient saying, "Oh my gosh, you've spent more time with me today than I've spent with ever spent with my my doctor." And I thought they meant like 
you know, the amount of time I spent in this appointment compared to a normal appointment with him. And I, and I explained to him, I go, well, you know, because we don't take insurance and I'll get into that a little bit later, we're not required to have that high of a volume and we can spend more time talking. And they said, no, in all the years cumulative I've spent with my doctor, you just spent more time with me. So, and that's really where I think I realized that this pill for problem approach wasn't working and I wasn't getting, um, I wasn't being fulfilled by my job. So I put myself back through training, um, went and learned a lot more about nutrition. Cause uh, they don't teach you a whole lot about nutrition in medical school, do they? No, I always joke that you, what I learned, uh, about nutrition in medical school, I could write on the back of a matchbook with a crayon. Like it was a short lecture. Um, and, and probably everything in that lecture was wrong from what I've, or I would say from what I know now, it was wrong. And I, I, I don't want to stop the role you're on, but aren't we really understanding that the basics, the basis of human health has to start with nutrition? Yeah. I mean, the, in our clinic, we have this, um, we have these principles, we call them the pillars of health. And essentially it's, it's looking at five things that you, you need as a human. And so I always say you need, you need food, right? Food and water. So those are our inputs in your world. Um, you need to move. So even people in comas have to be moved occasionally uh, or they die. Right. right? get bed sores or right. fluids bed accumulate. Sores. Exactly. So you got to pump lymphatic fluids around. You got to keep muscles moving. So you need movement. Um, we need sleep. In fact, uh, Guinness Book of World Records now no longer allows you to try to set a new record for sleeplessness. Because people die once they get pat. There's a threshold where if you try to go without sleep much longer than that, you die. I, I know I've been without sleep working hard when I was in the military for yeah. you know, close to 60 hours. And it's like, yeah. it's like drinking a case of beer. You have no idea what's going on. Yeah, you're, you're impaired um, for sure for that. So, um, and then elimination. So, you know, we think elimination of bowel and bladder. But it's also eliminating toxins in your environment. Uh, maybe eliminating negative narratives about yourself, you know, things that we tell ourselves and we are harder on ourselves than probably most people are on us. So we, we're, we help patients think about that elimination as being things that maybe you're doing in your lifestyle. That's not productive things in your relationships that aren't productive. Um, your negative narratives, not just your bowel and bladder movement, but bowel and bladder is obviously a big function of that. And then the fifth pillar is purpose. You know, it's something we were talking about this morning is that, that your passion and what you're doing really drives that purpose. Right. And you have a very clear focus. And I, and I mean, I can tell that if something comes up to you, you, you immediately think about how is that going to make me grow better soil, grow a better cow? And if it doesn't, I bet your answer is not interested. Most likely. Yeah. yeah. So, so that's, so those are kind of the five principles that we, that guide our care for our patient population. So, so about eight years ago, I, I went back and I did um, some, education in, in a field that's called integrative and functional medicine. And, it, and I always joke that functional medicine is, it's complicated. It, it's fixing the problems you didn't know you had in ways you don't understand. Right. <laughs> okay. So, but that, that's functional medicine. I think the better way to look at it is, is fixing problems by starting with lifestyle first. So, um, you know, like I said this morning, we were talking about how, how to fix a problem. Um, I would rather fix a problem by subtracting something from the equation than adding something and adding me either a pill or even a supplement. Okay. I would rather figure out 
okay, do I need to take something away from what you're doing or, or maybe a food that you're eating or something, something that you're doing that's destructive? Um, that would be where we would start. So that's kind of functional medicine. Every, every problem we approach, we start by saying, okay, what, how is the, how's the organism doing as a whole? Really try to think of the person as a whole person. So a more holistic approach to medicine, looking at the entire more. system rather yeah. than just saying, well, this is a symptom. We're just going to keep throwing pills at it till it gets better. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and family docs really, I mean, we, out of the gate, we're built to, to think about the whole human. I mean, you know, I used to say that I was cradled or uh, a womb to the tomb, you know, but I don't deliver babies anymore. So it's just <laughs> cradle to the grave, but we really do take care of just about every problem you can think of. Um, so I think for me that my background really helped me understand that, okay, I need to take a more holistic approach and go get more education. But what it also meant is I can't do it in seven minutes. Right. So did all this hit you just like all at once or was it kind of like a slow dawning realization? I would say, I would say it was an iterative process. Uh, the, the, my resolve to, to be more satisfied in my practice led me to, trying to figure out how I can affect change that's trans that that's translational change in people. Like I'm going to take you from where you are now and put you somewhere else that's translating you. Um, and then realizing that, okay, okay, I can't do that in a seven minute visit. So in the current model of third party reimbursement, um, I'm either going to have to get, I'm going to have to sell a couple of my kids, <laughs> right? <laughs> or a kidney. Or kidney, um, or I'm going to have to change the way I, the change the value proposition that I have in what I do. And so what what I did, and it's kind of crazy. We were talking about Obamacare, or the I'm sorry, the Affordable Care Act. I don't want to use yeah the, the, um, the, uh, the very appropriately named yeah. Affordable Care Act because everybody's health care has gotten more affordable. But so I started a practice, Pray Health and Wellness is the name of my practice, and um, we went cash only, which means I took no government contracts, no third-party payers. Um, everything was, you know, fee-for-service. And we have a membership model where we do this, where people just pay a monthly uh, membership. And for that, they get, you know, we do a, a pretty advanced lab panel once per year, and they get um, discounts on medications, discounts on other labs that might be needed, and they don't pay for their appointments. So we just kind of, we really are trying to simplify the model and saying, we're here to take care of you. And then I have a whole team of people that helped me do that. So I have, so it's kind of like, this is your subscription and come in and we'll help you figure out how to feel better. Yeah. So we have, we have a, um, a naturopathic doctor. We have, um, doctors of osteopathy. So my, my background is MD. So there's MDs, there's DOs, there's NDs. We have a doctor of chiropractic medicine. We have, um, I thought you, I thought your real doctors didn't associate with chiropractic doctors. Yeah. Yeah. The, the growing up, the term was Cairo quack, but, um, you know, it's a funny story. I, I had, I woke up one morning and I could not move and I tried all the tricks I knew how to, to do. And I, I couldn't, I had a rib, I guess that was out of a facet, which is a tiny little joint in your back. And, uh, I went and saw a chiropractor and, um, he did his little thing and I thought, well, that's not going to do anything. And the next morning I woke up and I felt perfect. And I thought, okay, I need, you know what? Maybe there is something. There. Maybe there's something to it. And so I think a lot of things are like that. Like I think you, you can kind of subdivide most doctors into two groups. The groups, the group that says, well, that's interesting. That wasn't what I thought. I need to probably learn more about that. And then the group that goes, well, that doesn't make sense. I, I, I don't believe in that. That's scary. <laughs> that's scary. Right. So I, I try to fall on the side of saying, hey, I don't know everything. 
and you know there's there's definitely ways of doing things that are new and so I'm I'm open to a lot of different ideas and I think that's served our patient population well Awesome. And I guess since Tanya just spoke up, I should have mentioned in the intro that my lovely better half Tanya is here in the studio with us. I got a little bit focused on uh, on my spiel and just kind of left that part out. Sorry about that, dear. <laughs> it's okay. I won't stay quiet too long. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the things I just wrote down, I, and we can, we need probably get to this later, is like how would another doctor that's listening to this who just had the light bulb moment, what would you have to say to him if he wants to be more like you? Yeah. And, and maybe that question is not fully formed and we can always circle back to that later. No, I, I think that's, that's a question I get a lot. Um, you know, and it was funny when we started the practice and decided to cash base, that was the month before Obamacare became law of the land. So here I was medical practice in Wichita, Kansas that said, we don't take insurance when everybody in the United States is now required to have insurance. And I thought, great. We're sunk. <laughs> Your investors probably thought you were nuts. Yeah. Um, and well, and my investor was me. Uh, you know, my wife and I, we emptied our savings accounts and I started going back and moonlighting and working in the ERs. And uh, we started really pinching pennies when we opened the business. Um, you know, got a, a small uh, gift from my father and, and that helped us kind of get rolling. And, you know, we started with two providers. It was myself and my nurse practitioner, Jolene's of Nuska, who she's just an um, unbelievably talented. What year did you open? So this was, we just celebrated our eighth anniversary. So, uh, yeah, eight years ago. And, you know, Jolene's expertise was in women's hormones and women's health. And so we, we, we made a pretty good um, team. And now we have 11 providers and two clinics. And, um, it's been amazing. In fact, over the pandemic, um, I was fairly controversial in our area for using, for actually treating COVID, which I never would have dreamed that being a doctor that treated somebody who is sick would be controversial, but, um, that's, that's where it came. And what happened is our practice exploded. I mean, we, we have a waiting list now. It got up to over a thousand people. And so we had to publicity is never a bad thing, even if controversial yeah. publicity really so yeah. if, you, if if your waiting list is that big mm-hmm. like what's that in comparison to your client base i mean you don't have to say the number if you don't want to i'm just i'm just kind of curious like well, do you have as yeah. many people on the waiting list as you can take care of um yeah so that that well that's why we started the waiting list is we wanted to make sure number one that we kept the quality high we d- i didn't want to i didn't want to then go back to that oh i got to see somebody every seven minutes and so we said well we're gonna have to find some more providers and we got to find people who think outside the box and don't just do pill for problems. So that makes it a little bit more challenging to find a doctor. Um, but we, we brought two new doctors on and so we're starting to work through that waiting list, but you know, in a, in a direct primary care model, which is the business model we follow. So in a direct primary care model, um, a doctor can take care of anywhere from 800 to 1200 people, depending on support okay. staff, depending on how you want to do that, you know, and there's some direct primary care clinics where it's the doctor, a nurse, and, and a receptionist, and that's it. They don't have any other support staff. And that doctor's supposed to remember details about a thousand patients. Yeah, right. And and so I I like the team approach, and I like I I feel like more more minds working on a problem is better. So we have actually and, and the way we, our clinic is actually constructed. All of the doctors sit in one office. So in my old practice, each doctor was in their own pod that couldn't physically be further from another doctor. 
And I think that was kind of by design. Everybody kind of went off in their own hallway and their own at the end of their own hallway. Well, yeah, they want to have their own echo chamber. Or just or just put their nose to the grindstone, maybe. You yeah. Know, not be distracted. So in in my clinic, I said, no, I want us all to be in the same room. So we sit in a room about this size, and we have desks all the way around the windows. And what's fun about that is we can come in and say, man, I just had a really difficult patient, and that's struggling with this issue. And here's what we've tried. And you know, I'll be talking out loud, and some people say, oh, you know what? I read an article the other day. Um, have you tried this, or have you thought about this? Or you know, just be somebody who thinks about the problem from a different angle. Right. And that makes me a better doctor to hear that for us to be able to, as a team, kind of work through these problems. So I think that's another uh, something I would recommend if any doctor was thinking about doing that is don't don't feel like you got to be the one man army. Don't try to do it all on your own. Clean out the break room. Move all your desks in there. Yeah. Yeah. Get the Yeah. Talk to each other. Talk to each other and find out what's working. And 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 what I, I think what I really love about the model that I've discovered over time is the patients we attract. So when, you know, in my old practice, when someone's, I'd say, oh, what brings you in today? Well, doc, you're the, uh, you're, you're the guy on the back of my insurance card that I'm supposed to go to. Like, oh, that makes me feel great. Yeah. You know? And so now, you know, when, when someone sees me, it's like they, they're there because they need help and they believe I have something that can help them. And, and they have purposefully sought you out. And from what they know about you and your practice and how you treat people, and they want to pay the premium in cash to come see you. Yeah, yeah. And so what it does is it gives us that patient that's really motivated towards that translational change, which ultimately makes my job more fun and hopefully makes me a better doctor, you know, better at meeting that patient's need. So that I think that's the thing I love about the model is that, you know, we know exactly how many patients we have because we know how many are on the membership and continue to pay. And, and that's, you know, that's our value proposition. If we're not creating value, that number is going to go down. If we're creating value, that number should go up. So it, it makes understanding your, your, how you're doing at your job a lot better because the way, you know, and a lot of people don't know this, but a lot of doctors have to keep track of, in, in an insurance model where Medicare is paying, you have to, there's all these performance indicators, little check boxes that you got to match for each visit. Like, you know, for a while there, you had to ask everybody about whether they had guns in the home because that was somehow important to their health. <laughs> yeah, right. And, you know, and if you didn't meet a number, you didn't mark that checkbox on a number of people, then you didn't meet the meaningful use criteria for Medicare. And then your reimbursement would go down. Well, at first they put it out there as a carrot. So they say, if you meet it, you get this extra bonus. And then in year three, it won't be a bonus. It'll be a... If you're not meeting it, it's a penalty. It's a penalty. Yeah. So so I, I don't have to listen to what the government wants me to think is meaningful. What's meaningful is what you and I sit down across from each other and say, all right, this is just you and I. And it brings the doctor and the patient back together again rather than having that third-party influence there. Because I really don't care what an insurance company thinks is medically necessary. Uh, yeah. Who is, a, who is a medical adjuster sitting in an office or around a boardroom or in front of a computer screen? Who are they to tell you, yeah. the doctor on the scene in the room with the patient, what is or, medi- is or isn't medically necessary? But I can also see the point of it where, you know, they didn't want – doctors to be able to go out and just prescribe a bunch of tests, prescribe a bunch of drugs so they could line their pockets. Yeah. The insurance company has to, they they got to control their cost. but the insurance cost, insurance company, who's their real customer now? 
Well, their customers, the government, because the government's underwriting all this in the ACA. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I try not to get horribly political <laughs> yeah. on this podcast, it's hard not to. but you know, when you put government in charge of anything, there's no accountability for the product and the quality always goes down and the cost will do nothing but go up. Yeah. So it's funny, the DPC model, so direct primary care, um, Josh Umber, who's probably one of the most well-recognized DPC doctors in, in the country. He's been on Hannity's show and um, he, he speaks a lot and he helps a lot of practices set this model up. And um, he and I were on a, a, a kind of a round table discussion with some people who were running for office and the, their goal was to see, could DPC somehow help Medicaid? So Medicaid is our welfare system and, and it's, it's going broke, right? It just doesn't have enough money in the system. And Josh had basically shown them that like, Hey, with the typical, and I think at that time he was charging $50 a month with a $50 a month, capitated rate for every Medicaid patient in the system, here's the care you could deliver. And they would have made money by doing that. They would have saved, I don't remember how many million, but it was, it was a big number, but they couldn't wrap their heads around the simplicity of it. That's what it is with so many. I've had so many times that people came into my business and asked if I took insurance. I do massage Mm -hmm. and I've noticed what you're talking about from day one in the beginning when I started, I think there were people in Kansas the lot that worked for chiropractors that did take um, insurance for massage, but it's very rare now. Very right. rare because massage is not regulated in Kansas, mm-hmm. which is amazing mm-hmm. because I don't have anybody breathing down my neck about how I do my job and I never have. And Oklahoma changed regulations not a year ago. And there are so many rules around what sort of massage someone can practice now mm-hmm. that, that they can't do their job. And then they're now being asked to take insurance on top of that. And it totally takes away from the quality of patient is what it does. And that's the first thing that I have really changed about my business since I stopped working as many hours is I've kind of kept my quality customers that are there because they want to be there. They're there once a month and they go do the things that I teach them when they leave. And, you know, you don't get that. You don't get that yeah. over the time yeah. at all. Well, I think a, a fundamental misunderstanding people have is they think that health insurance is health care and health insurance is not health care. So when we when we say the Affordable Care Act, you know, they were trying to make insurance affordable. But what happened is it drove the price up of everything yep. because that complexity is now there. So, so, yeah, I think I think the you got to separate what health care is from health insurance. You know, health insurance is they're, they're trying to insure against a loss and there's a claim that has to be filed. And then, you know, you have to have so many points of documentation to be able to justify what you're charging the insurance company. And then oftentimes they'll fight you over it. They'll, you know, tell you, Oh, you can't order that test. You can order this test. And, and it's been an incredible experience just to get completely away from that. I, I always kind of smile whenever I see the man, the medical management magazine come in that talks about the latest, you know, thing that people are trying to figure out how to wrap their heads around from a regulatory standpoint. And I'm just like, I don't even have to read that article. Yeah, but that's so <laughs> relieving. It's not even funny. Yeah. It's been, it's been very freeing. And like I said, I think this is a model that people are aching for because people are tired of that seven minute visit. <clears throat> we started using, I don't know, Atlas in Wichita. Yeah, I don't know, like that's Josh fi- Umbers 15 practice. years ago, probably for a while. And the reason I used it is because I was 30, mm-hmm. couldn't afford healthcare. And couldn't afford health insurance mm-hmm. and still needed health care. Mm-hmm. And it was, I mean, it was the 
I spent 50 bucks a month, I think 65 for my daughter and I for four years probably. Yeah. And that provided the majority of everything we needed, honestly. Yeah. It's, it's amazing when, when you look at the, you know, the costs of things. I mean, you know, we, we were ordering, you know, like a, a CT scan, if you ran it through your insurance, be two or $3,000 and you can, with cash, you can buy a CT scan for 250 to $300. I started shopping around yeah. for my tests. I actually remember doing that for a while. And then the other thing is that people don't take into consideration, I imagine from either standpoint is like, if you offer to give somebody a CT for free, they're going to go get six of them. You mm-hmm. know, you end up with like hypochondriacs that want tests for everything. And that's because they're Free. They're free. Yeah. They're free. Yeah. They're, it's not know? coming out of their pocketbook. That's a really good point, actually. And I think that's something that direct primary care helps control in a very natural way is, you know, I'll sit down with someone and say, well, okay, I think, I think we need to get an MRI of your knee. And they're like, well, how much will that cost? Oh, we can get one for about four or 500 bucks. And they go, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll work with that physical therapist you were talking well, about. Maybe I don't need to get an MRI here today. But if some, if I said the MRI, is, you don't have to pay anything for it. They're like, all right, sure. Absolutely. I'll go and get that done. So you give people control of their own health. They're willing to take control of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the, you know, the problem is you can't know what the prices are. And I ran into this problem in the surgical world. I mean, I, I do colonoscopies, um, you know, screening for colon cancer, and that's still a procedure I enjoy doing. But what was difficult is about that procedure is that you have you have four four entities involved in doing a colonoscopy. So you got to have a surgery center to do it. So they got to get their fee. You have to have an anesthesiologist unless you want to be awake for your colonoscopy. Most people do not want to be awake for that. Um, do you enjoy them more when the patient is awake or when they're <laughs> asleep? You yeah. said you enjoy colonoscopy. I do. I know. That's prob- I probably should say why. I think I enjoy it because it's a di- that's a different part of my brain that I get to use. Okay. So I get to use my hands. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working the dials, the controls, and it's, it's a, there is a finite, I know there's a beginning and there's an end. And you're either going to find something or or, nothing. Or you're not. Right. So, and so if you find something, you're going to have a pathology fee. And so then you have, of course, the fee, my fee for doing the procedure. So that, you know, I could, I could come up with my fee fine, but the problem is I I couldn't tell the patient, well, here's how much the anesthesiologist is going to be. Here's what the surgery center is going to be. So that led me to create another business called fair market health, which, um, is a whole nother business that I started to bundle all those fees together so that someone could say, well, I know I need a colonoscopy. I'm just going to go in and pay for that colonoscopy and it'll include everything that needs to be a part of that. And so we now have, I don't know, over a hundred procedures on fair market health. And it's basically a marketplace for the cash, cash patient. And, What's remarkable is businesses are beginning to find out about fair market health because they're the ones that are really absorbing most of the brunt of this expansion in cost. I, I bet your colleagues appreciate it too. Yeah, well, yeah, the surgeons who are like the surgeons who sign up for fair market health. They what they like about it is the simplicity. When they see a patient who's coming from fair market health, like I, I had to have knee surgery um, three months ago. I I tore my ACL doing something dumb on a dirt bike, and that'll happen. It happens, yeah. Um, and, you know, even though I have insurance, I, I was like, I, I want to see what I can see what the price is through the marketplace. And, and when I did the math, I would have spent more money had I gone through my deductible and then paid my 80-20 copay. I, I would have spent more than I did when I just paid the surgeon directly. And what the surgeon have told us is they, when they see a fair market health patient on their schedule, they love it. Because you know what? They've, that means they're already getting paid. 
right and away with no. They don't have to fight for it. They don't have to call an insurance company. They don't have to see if there's, you know, it, what it's less admin existing. work in the office. It's totally less admin. It allows them to do what they really love doing. They, I think they that's like doing surgery. I think that's what the ACA really created was a lot of admin work and a lot of paperwork. Oh, look at the expansion and and just oversight costs in hospitals and look at how much the C-suite of most, most of these large hospital systems are just administrator after administrator after yep. administrator. I mean, it's like they're ha- the biggest. Um, they're the biggest employer, I yeah. think, in Medicine Lodge, actually. And it's not like that we have. We actually don't have any doctors currently. There, there's two that are coming, but and there's probably like six administrators. Yeah, oh. six administrators, and so that means they're working that one or two doctors like a rented mule. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and they getting... are. It's it, and then a lot of it is admin, and you know, it's because of all the garbage they have to go through to get paid, and it's it's a mess. It's a pain. And well, I can't imagine why anybody would want to subject themselves to eight or ten years of medical school to come out to be ridden herd on by, you know, a four-year degree holder that's the admin that's making more money than you telling you how to do your job. I can't imagine that, that that's an appealing prospect for a new resident. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So um, one of the doctors we hired, he's, he was a hospitalist. So, I mean, he just took care of patients in a hospital. Um, he's, an, he's a Navy guy, too. And he, um, you know, he was kind of talking about like what his day involved and it was, it was very little patient contact. It was mostly paperwork. And so, yeah, you've taken the most well-educated person in the medical system and turned them into a clerical position. I mean, he has to sit down at a computer and enter in each order he wants to order and he has to you know, do all the documentation himself. And what other industry do you take the person who, who knows the most in that industry or who has achieved the highest level of training and then go make them do the the entry level data entry work that makes you but hate what, your job and oh then you totally like the part that that would be the worst for me and i i imagine you've gotten to see some change in this is that you don't get to see the results of your work like when you go to work you don't go and build a house and then leave and be able to be like hey honey look we built that house and see what you've created but when you have time with your patient you yeah. actually get to see the results, and that's rewarding. Instead of going to an office and doing office work, that would, to me, that has to be like right. ruining doctors. Yeah, so it's it's made you know the documentation we do in the office is much simpler now because we're documenting for what we need to know for that patient. You know, much like you're taking field notes. You know, I mean, if you can imagine if the government was making was overseeing everything you're doing, you had to track every inch that you walked and you had to justify every wire that you moved and I would not tolerate that I mean and you know (laughs) you kind of think about like an oil something simple like an oil change imagine if we used our car insurance to go get oil changes so you can imagine how the conversation goes you come in and they go well you're going to need this oil change now your manufacturer recommends that you have a 1030 synthetic but unfortunately your insurance is only going to pay for 1040 non-synthetic so we're going to have to call and get a approval you know the prior the dreaded prior authorization and then they for c- that oil change and then they come back what said well the price we're going to charge your insurance is 140 dollars, but we're going to negotiate that down to 20 down to 100 and your copay is only 20 <laughs> right and for for oil that probably cost 15 it, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah so you can see that like if you just did that with just the oil change industry oil changes are going to get more expensive, right? Because you've just added a bunch of complexity to something that didn't need to be that complex. So oh, but think, we, yeah. was supposed, we were making it more affordable though, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Have we depressed everybody? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> no, I think, I think there's that you guys would be surprised going back to the five-year-old thing. How many grown adults that pay for health insurance don't, 
have a clue how not only how the system actually works today, but why it works the way it does and how it got there and why things do cost so much because people want to blame their doctor right away or they want to blame any one thing. And it's not any one thing. It's the yeah. whole regulatory thing as a whole. And there are reasons that things are so expensive and there are reasons that your insurance doesn't want to pay for stuff and people don't see the root of the problem. They want to pill this problem too, really. Well, and, and, and in the end, you know, that, that month that we opened that Obamacare became law of the land that actually ended up being the best thing for our business because now there are all these people who had health insurance and they went to their doctor and they got something done and then they got the bill and they're like, wait a minute, I have health insurance. And the doctor's like, yeah, and you have a deductible for $5,000. And you're like, a deductible what? <laughs> yeah. You know? And so now that people are like, well, how much does it cost for me to get a strep throat test? We don't know. That's the other thing. They don't know. People yeah. are asking you call the hospital. now, though. You know, the number one reason to be admitted to the hospital in the United States is to have a baby. Call the hospital and ask them, hey, how much does it cost to have a baby? Nobody will know. Nobody knows. And if you do get an answer, it's going to be completely different from the other hospitals that are in the same area. It'll be like seven to $75,000. Brian, our oh. eye surgery and my tonsil surgery were two good examples. So I had my tonsils out a few years ago and had no health insurance. Couldn't afford to pay for it all at once. So I couldn't go to the surgery center mm-hmm. because I had to make payments. And they wanted their money all up front. So mm-hmm. my doctor scheduled it at the hospital because they would let me make payments mm-hmm. there. By the time it was all said and done, I think all four people that I had to pay, mm-hmm. it was over $14,000 for a tonsillectomy wow. and um, a polyp taken off my vocal cords. So it was a really simple surgery. Yeah. I was in the hospital from like 9.15, was gone by noon, I think probably. Um, Brian had an eye surgery two that, or three years ago. And that was that was the torn and detached retina. And it was pretty complicated. And I think when it was all said and done, it was less than $3,000, but paid cash for it all. Yeah, yeah we paid cash. Um I had to deal with the surgeon, mm-hmm. my, my surgeon. I'll, I'll tell you who it is later. You probably know him. Um, so we had a deal, and all I had to pay was for the clinic time and the anesthesiologist. Yeah. And my cash price was, like, so low. And I was like, well, how much would y'all charge the insurance company? And he told me, uh-huh. and it was 10%. I ended up paying 10% of what they would have charged the insurance company. So I was like, okay, walk me through this. How does this work? He says, okay, well, we taken we submit this big bill which is kind of high to the insurance company they say we're not going to pay that you need to knock it down and then we go back and forth two or three times until we finally get to the number that they're actually going to pay which is going to be somewhere around here which is what you're paying yeah yeah and and the reality is he would do that cash price all day long every day i'm sure it's it's not and that wasn't charity care right what he charged you was what we that's why we called it fair market health that's the fair market price yep the price is out there somewhere, right? I mean, if you just let the market do what it'll do, we'll start to see prices fall down. Which is people asking the questions and people insisting on transparency. Do you, do you guys know how they establish prices in the hospital system? Speaking of your tonsillectomy. I have no idea, no. I, so I'd love to know. Something it's to fascinating. Do with, I, I would assume has something to do with Medic- Medicare. So Medicare sets the basement. Ba- Medicare, you can't go below Medicare. So Medicare is basically the threshold that no one can fall below. So, no, the way, the way they do this is they have this thing called a master charge sheet. And let's say tonsillectomy is one of the line items on that master charge sheet. Okay, the top of that charge sheet, each column is going to be who their payers are. They're going to have Aetna, Blue Cross, Blue Shield, you know, Cigna. Um, are you telling me they have a sheet where they charge different providers different dollar amounts for oh, the yeah. same procedure on oh, yeah. the same patient? Oh, yeah. Hold on. I oh, want to yeah. hear this all the way through. Uh, <laughs> yep. 
Yep, exactly right. So they charge different amounts to each one of those carriers, okay, because that's a negotiated price. Now, of course, they're not going to publish that, right, because that would be a trade secret or, you know, that would, you know, you'd see how the sausage was made then. A, a trade secret, that's more like criminal behavior almost. It, it feels a little bit like it. So, But what's remarkable is that then they look at the year and they go, okay, well, how much did we actually get paid, right? Because you talk about that negotiation back and forth and they'll say, Oh, well, Aetna paid 65% of what we wanted, and Blue Cross Blue Shield only paid 50%. And then Cigna, oh, Cigna paid 100%. Guess what the price does the next year? Goes up. Goes up. To the Cigna price. Yep. They just raise everything up to there. And so now, you know, then they, but it's all done on percentages. And so Blue Cross Blue Shield, as you know, makes you as a business owner feel really good. They're like, well, we're getting you a discount. Yeah. We're getting you a percentage off. But a percentage off of what? It's a percentage off of a made-up number. It's a percentage off of an extremely inflated price that they won't tell you what it's really worth in the first place. They'll just tell you that, oh, we're giving you a good deal on it because we're giving you 50% off. Here's the, here's the really dirty secret. They don't know the price. The hospital doesn't know how much it actually costs to do something in their hospital. Because think about it. If they've charged these really inflated fees they have to spread those costs out over other cost centers in their business. Right. So I, I use an example. And I imagine there's some, there's some just cost sinks in the hospital that aren't yes. going to generate revenue no matter what that right. have to be so, accounted for. So one of the cost sinks is you, when you get a new physician on, you have to credential them. And that means you got to sign them up for all the third-party payers and you got to do a lot. It's a lot of paperwork essentially. So when I was an independent provider, I would, I would I'm go, assuming all that paperwork is just mandated by the government. Well, it's, it's, um, some of it probably is if for, through Medicare, but it's also just insurance companies. It's just part of their thing for signing up for them. You know, you're going to have to fill all this stuff out. And then you got to make sure that you're keeping regular on everything. So I, I would pay someone $500 a year to do that for me. Probably totally worth it. Yeah, it was totally worth it because I don't want to spend that time doing that. I hate doing paperwork. So that was money well spent. In a hospital system, so, so $500 to credential one physician for a year. In the hospital, they did their credentialing in-house. It was $37,000 to credential a physician for a year. And your eyeballs just got really big. You're like, how could it cost $37,000? It doesn't. It doesn't. They don't do cost. Like when you have a restaurant, you know how much that plate of French fries costs, including dishes and server and all that stuff. They don't do that is what you're saying. Right. And you know how much much Dawn dish liquid you're going to have to use to clean the plate. Yeah. So the hospitals, they've lost They've lost so they've lost track of what the real costs of everything are inside their own system. But you know, I suppose that then there's the argument to be made of when somebody's in the table in the ER mm-hmm. and they're bleeding out and their vitals are crashing. Nobody's gonna nobody's gonna dicker over the cost of a freaking Tylenol. Right. It's fix the guy, get him stable, get him alive. We don't care what it costs. Yeah. And is that the mentality that's just infected the rest of the industry? Like, we don't need to tell you what it costs. We're just going to make you better and you can pay us later. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, if you think about the insurance game, it's really, you're signing a blank check. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, when, now to, well, when you to, walk into the ER, you're basically giving them your checkbook. Right. Yeah. And, you know, to the credit of ERs, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to make it just bash on the American medical system. One thing that we're really good at in the United States is if you have, you know, catastrophic injury out on your ranch right if you can get to the er within an hour 
chances of surviving are very high here in the United States. We're really good at taking care of... Yeah, I, I'm not worried about a common cold. Like, <laughs> you just laid out my scenario right there. Exactly. Getting hurt and being able to get to the hospital in an hour. Those are my two problems. Well, right. critical care in this part of the country is less than other places, but it's still outstanding. It's outstanding. Yeah, I mean, you know, the fact that someone could be having a heart attack and in 30 minutes have be in a cath lab with a balloon inflating that opens that artery back up, that's... That's the miracle of modern medicine. Like that stuff really is amazing. And it takes a lot of, you know, money and development to do that. But the emergency pro- medicine doesn't necessarily go into play with this the same way either, does it? Well, and, and I think, you know, there's inappropriate use of emergency rooms. Someone's like, well, I have a headache and my doctor's office can't get me in today. So I'll just go into the ER. Right. right. Uh, yeah. I've, I've, that, I've seen and watched that scenario play out. I, I don't know how many times. And I almost kind of hesitate to tell this to tell this little anecdote because they're she'll know who I'm talking about, but that's fine. <laughs> she, she's already mad at me anyway, and she's not in this room. Um, there's, there's a woman I used to know that had, had three boys and they were all in sports and she had a good job working for, let's just say a power utility. Mm-hmm. So a good sweet union job with a union negotiated health plan working for the power utility. Okay. You following me so yep. far? So mm-hmm. basically a public, you know, public employee union that has unlimited power to shut things down if they really, really wanted to to, to flex that strike muscle. So they negotiated a really sweet health plan for, you know, all the employees and their dependents. And it was a pretty low copay and and pretty high coverage limits. So this lady would take her kids, like, just like you said, get a sniffle at eight o'clock at night. Eh, Let's go to the hospital. Let's go to the emergency room. Yep. Um, Hang on a second. I thought it was... No hospital trips on the weekends, and then you better either be bleeding, dying, or have a bone sticking out of your body. Other than that, we are not going. You can make an appointment. Yeah. Like, and I think that's some of the way, some, that's kind of how we got off the rails on a lot of this is, you know, unions use their muscle to force, you know, large companies into these sweetheart health plans that are like, you go to the emergency room, you know, you only have to pay $200 a month for your part of it. Low deductible. Great. Cause that's what you wanted in order to keep the production lines at general motors working for another five years. Right. And then other industries get that, mm-hmm. you know, the teachers unions get that. The firefighters unions get that. The police unions get that. Yes. I like to pick on unions. Don't judge me too harshly, but <laughs> that's what they do. They use their, you know, their large collective bargaining power to break the arms of these companies. And then we get into a situation like we got now that, everybody's got to have health care and it's super expensive. And when you go to the hospital, there's super long waits for substandard care from a doctor that treats you like an abs that just treats you like a number and a file doesn't know a thing about you. Mm-hmm. So my personal experience, like I've been trying to find a doctor that I can get along with mm-hmm. for two years. Yeah. Okay. I went to one and like you said, like, I'm not even sure I got seven and a half minutes. It was maybe more like three or four. Right. She asked a few basic questions, asked what was wrong with me, and then ordered a whole bunch of blood tests. I'm like, what do you want this blood test for? And she gave me a list and is like, anything else? I guess not. And then she was gone. I'm not even sure I got seven and a half minutes of her time. Yeah. She didn't ask me a thing about how I slept. Didn't ask me how I ate. Didn't ask about my activity level. Didn't ask how much water I drank. Uh Do you think I went back to her? Yeah. Did she didn't ask you about your purpose in life? No, she didn't ask that either. <laughs> but she wanted a whole bunch of tests. And the yeah. tests, like, I called over to the hospital and was like, okay, I got these, these, you know, I got all these tests from this doctor. How much is that going to cost? And it was over $1,000 a blood test. 
$1,000 of blood testing. You didn't even ask me how much water I've had to drink or yeah. you didn't ask him about my eating habits. Well, she didn't ask the most important question first, which was, do you have health insurance and how high is your deductible? Because <laughs> if your deductible was really low, you would have never asked. Yeah, that's that's probably true, too. Yeah. I, that, I mean, again, that goes back to why I really love the direct primary care model is that it brings that relationship back to you and me and it's talking about, well, here. You know, I'd be like, well, Brian, I don't know what's going on, but, you know, I think these tests will help us figure it out. But the cool thing with DPC is that, you know, those blood tests would have been a fraction of that price. Right. Right. And so, I mean, for our members, we do a CBC, a CMP, a vitamin D, an omega-3, a TSH, a PSA, uh, an insulin, and an A1C on every one of our patients. Only about year. three of those were in actual English that any of my <laughs> listeners are going to understand, Doc. Yeah. They can pause it and, and <laughs> rewind. But but that whole panel, we just include that in the price of the membership because that helps us take better care of you. We don't even want you to think about the cost of that lab panel. And then, you know, like a, a vitamin D test, a, a, you know, another practice, uh, if you had to pay cash for it, it was $235. At our place, it's like $30. Do you do some of those in-house, or do you guys have a place where you contract with those? Yeah, no, we, most of our labs we send through LabCorp, but we, we send our, our, our cardiovascular panel goes to Quest, which is Cleveland Heart is who is partnered there. And, you know, we have a few specialty labs that we use that are kind of harder to find stuff. If I, if I wanted to measure how much glyphosate's in you, I can't do that through LabCorp. I'd have to do you that through. You can do that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Ooh, is, <laughs> that's like, all, can you do it to my cows? Yeah. Yeah, that's a can of worms. That yeah. is a can of worms right yeah. there. Why How much are glyphosate we able is to in measure you? glyphosate in humans? Well, I mean, the science says that it's totally safe. The science says it's totally safe. Yeah. I mean, glyphosate is totally safe. It's not toxic or harmful and to we human won't beings. Find it in and humans, you won't right? find it in humans because there's no chance that that glyphosate residue can ever be in human tissue. It won't make it to the food. It, it doesn't make it to the food. It's perfectly safe. Trust the science. Trust the science. So, uh, okay. So answer this one for me. Why is it that we can measure glyphosate in a box of Cheerios? Because Cheerios are made with oats, right? Yeah. Is oats, oats aren't GMO and sprayed with round, there's no Roundup ready oats, are there? I've never heard of any. No, but I guarantee you there's a field that's been sprayed with Roundup and then planted to oats six months later. Or the year before on that oat oh, field, yeah. they grew a crop that they burned, they yeah. grew a cover crop or they had weeds that they burned down with glyphosate and then maybe planted their, their, al- their oats into that. I mean, there's so, a lot of crops that are probably full of it that are not Roundup ready. So, so th- that, th- this kind of brings us around to what we're talking about is that when my, my, I started being fascinated with this, not just glyphosate, but also just the, the idea of soil. I mean, we talk about our natural resources and I, once I started learning about soil and what's wrong with our food and, you know, you start, you start saying like, like you said, like, well, what, what's causing that? What's causing that? What's causing, you said you were going to be the one to ask what, what, what? So when you start asking that, well, why isn't our food good for us? Why why isn't it healthy anymore? And then you start going down and you and you get at some point you get to soil. You do. You always get it to soil. It always comes to soil. And so I started what I what's interesting is I started seeing in my patients who are farmers, because I like I love talking to farmers. They just it's something I I'm probably a farmer at heart. Like if I wasn't a doctor, I think I'd probably be doing something like you're what you're doing. I, I think the world needs you where you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you know, I talked to my farmers and, and I'd ask them like, well, what are you doing? Well, you know, I got to, I got to go buy some chemicals today. And like, oh, how much are you going to spend? Oh, I'm going to write a $130,000 check to spray on my fields tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, yeah. So, um, what I, what I realized is, oh, you guys are having the same thing happen in your industry that happened in my industry. 
you were convinced. Pill for a problem. You, exactly. Yep. There's a pill for your problem. It's like that at school too. Yeah, there's a chemical for that problem. We can just throw more chemicals at Microwave it. ovens, man. That's what did it. Like everybody got microwaves, then they wanted everything fast, like yeah. right away. So one of my one of my patients, is, his, <laughs> his business is just consulting with farmers and letting them know, hey, here's what you're going to need to spray this year. And so I asked him, I said, so what's, what is it you're telling people this year? And he goes, well, we're using a combination of four chemicals now. I said, what was it the year before? It was three. And before that, eh, we could get by with two in most cases. I'm like, where does this go? He's yeah. like, it's not pretty. Yeah, what's the end game here? What's the end game? Like Collapse. At some point, yeah. Well, I mean, at some point, I think you're going to find that there's just going to be farmers who can't write that check. Right. That's what's, I mean. That's what's going to happen today, this year. Like today, this yeah. year. Yeah, because of fuel prices, because of what fertilizer prices, because of all so, of that. So hopefully what happens, those farmers do the same thing that happened to me seven, eight years ago. And I was like, I got to figure out a different way to do this. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. Yeah, this is not sustainable for me. And And so that's what really got me interested in this conversation of, of connecting with farmers and listening to them. And, and now I try to convert them. Like if I know they're a spray, I call them spray farmers, but that's that <laughs> probably be. a really polite word. Yeah. Spray so farmers. I, if I can, if I get a spray farmer, I'm like, Hey, have you looked into regenerative farming? That's crazy. <laughs> he says, that's crazy. You're crazy. You're a doctor. You don't know anything about farming. They do. some of them get some, I either get one or two reactions. They get really hot under the collar. Or and they think it's and they're cute. Like, probably. Why are you telling me this? That regenerative crap doesn't work. Yeah. Or, or they say, you know, I've been hearing about this. It's interesting that you bring that up, right? And so that again goes back to, like I said, the two different kinds of doctors. When they doctors have it, that go, this, this is this resonates with me somehow. I want to learn more. Look, when you when you're sitting around the coffee shop and you're hearing one guy say regenerative agriculture, and then six of your buddies are going, "Oh, that crap doesn't work." Just keep keep spraying it away. You know, spray the spray the weeds away. Yeah. And then he comes into your office, and you're like, and you start talking about regenerative agriculture. That's a light bulb for that farmer. I guarantee you, that's a light bulb. Well, especially when he says, "I have a test that can check how much glyphosate's in your body." Then how I, many I, takers do you have on that? Do you uh, do that? I mean, really? Uh, it's. It? I mean, it's a test. I we do a probably. 10 to 12 of them a year. So it's not a one night. I probably should, I'm, to be honest, I probably should do it. More. I want you to test yourself. Yeah, I probably should. There's a lab, there's a lab, uh, the lab that does this testing is in Kansas. Great Plains lab, great, wonderful business. They, they do some really cool labs. Okay. So since we're on the subject, yeah. like, have you ever gotten one of those glyphosate tests back and gone, holy shit, why is this guy alive? Oh yeah. There's well, and it's not just glyphosate. There's a lot of environmental toxins. So, I mean, again, we kind of talk about our, our pillars of health. It's like the elimination step. Some people can eliminate things very efficiently. Like their liver can get rid of it. It can, or their, their skin can sweat it out or they can poop it out, pee it out. And some people can't, I mean, genetically, they just aren't designed to be able to handle some of these molecules. And so, you know, when we're dealing with difficult problems, sometimes we have to dig down really deep and go, okay, what are we missing? Like, well, let's start looking for these toxicants or potential toxicants is what I call them. So, yeah, it's like it's like finding lead. You know, in the United States, we we say a lead of a lead of one in a kid is considered the upper range of normal. Well, the World Health Organization in every other country, they go, no, lead needs to be zero in a kid. Right. So why are we allowing it to be up to one? Because if it was if it was up to one, if the, if we allowed it, then then nobody could drink any water. Probably we'd probably all well, we there'd be a lot of lawsuits for lead based paint. Yeah. Well, we can def- we can also just define away a problem. Right. So it's like like we talked about how they've changed a lot of definitions. <laughs> a lot of definitions have changed this year. If you've been paying attention, the last two years, yeah, yeah. Definitely. So you, you know you can you can make a whole lot of um, people 
have hyperlipidemia, which is high cholesterol, by changing the number. Just saying, okay, now normal cholesterol is 75. We don't want anybody to have a cholesterol over 75. Well, guess what? Now, most of your patient population is going to be hyperlipidemic. Now cows are bad. Well, now yeah, eggs are and, bad. Oh, man, don't get me started on the... Well, if you want to get started, like back all the way up to the 50s with the big sugar lie and start yeah. there. Yeah. No, I think it's a great place to start because actually there there was a paper that was written by um, a guy. Well, Ansel Keys came out with his study. And at the same time, Ansel Keys came out with his study that said fat was bad for you. Fat caused heart disease. Right. Um, I think this was after, was it Eisenhower had his heart attack or maybe it? I think it was Eisenhower had his heart attack, and that's what made everybody aware. Yeah, that's, that's what got everybody the, thinking about heart disease and yep. why did this happen to a healthy yep. guy that was in his 50s. And So at the same time that Ansel Keys published his study, which, by the way, he completely cherry-picked all the data, right? Surprise. I know. So it's kind of like those soil guys were out at your property today. If you knew where like the best, richest soil was and you said, I only want you to look here, don't look in any of these other places. Yeah, that's why they didn't let me pick the soil. That's why they didn't let me pick the points. (laughs) (laughs) I know where I've got some good dirt. Ansel Keys was saying, well, in countries where they eat a lot of animal fat, uh, they have higher rates of heart disease. But what he left out was all the places where they eat a high level of animal fat and they have really low heart disease. So about the same time that that paper came out, there's another scientist who wrote a paper called uh, sugar, the white devil. It's a very provocative name. You know, they had a lot more uh, ingenuity when they named their studies back then. And it was basically talking about how sugar is really one of the fundamental problems, right? And so, and it's interesting. You can look at the the development of diabetes in the ancient world. So when you start seeing diabetes, the description of diabetes as a disease show up in the ancient world, it followed the same path that sugarcane industry followed across the globe. Okay. By 10 years. So about 10 years after sugarcane showed up, you'd start seeing cases of diabetes. Define what we're talking about when we say diabetes, because there's type 1, which is the genetic diabetes, and type 2, which is dietary brought on. Yeah. So, well, I would put put a finer point on it and say that type 1 is where your pancreas cannot make insulin. So you've lost, there's a beta cell in your, in the, in the islet cells of your pancreas that makes insulin. In a type 1 diabetic, they've had an autoimmune attack. So their immune system attacked those beta cells, destroyed them. They can't produce insulin. So those people need insulin to live. Right. So that's type 1. Type 2 is exactly the opposite problem. A type 2 diabetic is and, making massive amounts of insulin. And that's mostly what we're talking about is a type 2, yes. is type two diabetes. Yeah. Or, or what I like to call diabetes, right? Because it, it often goes hand in hand with obesity. I see what you did there. Yeah, diabetes. So... So yeah, that you know, we we got off the rails, um, and I, I have a presentation that I give that I I use the CDC uh, map for obesity, um, and I can't remember what year, but there's a I think in 2014 they stopped taking this data. But what they did is they did a phone survey for like 15 or 20 years, and they would just call and ask somebody your height and your weight. So they were calculating. BMI, which is body mass index. It's is a useless number. It's a useless number, but it's a, it's at least a number. Okay. So, and so these are self-reported. So you know how most people are. 100% accurate. Yeah. It's going to be the same weight that's on their driver's license. 100% <laughs> accuracy there. But what's interesting is to watch what happened to the map of the United States and, and obesity. And obesity, um, at the time when they started the survey, there was no states that had greater than 10% obese patients. Okay. And this presentation I give, the map just keeps changing colors and they have to add a new category, a new category, a new category. <laughs> now we were up to the point where I don't think we have a single state that has less than 40% obesity. So we went from not having a state that was over 10 to not having a state that's not over 40% obesity. 
That's interesting. I thought by getting rid of all the animal fat in our diet that we'd all get skinnier. Yeah, exactly. That that's that's what that was the lie they told us, right? Is that oh, these the dietary fats and cholesterol and finally this year the American Heart Association removed dietary cholesterol as a nutrient of concern. And it didn't it barely made a splash at all. Like Well, yeah, nobody uh, will believe that either because the generation that's older than us you know, 60-year-old people still like live and die by that. Yeah, we hear low-fat, low-cholesterol, and we think that's healthy. Yes. Well, low-fat, low-cholesterol is terrible for you. Isn't the human brain basically just a big lump of fat that is fueled by cholesterol? Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, your brain is made up of DHA and cholesterol and lo- lots of fats, a lot of fatty acids in your brain. And, like, it's it's fueled by, like yeah. if you don't have the right kind of fatty acids, your brain doesn't work right. Well, and you can break you can break food down to basically three macronutrients, so big nutrient, meaning you, you can either, a food is either made of fat, it's protein, or it's a carbohydrate or a sugar. Carbohydrates and sugar I put in the same category. Okay, yep, that's that's what I heard too. You cannot live without ingesting fat. You can't live without ingesting protein. You have to bring those in. Okay. You actually don't need any carbohydrates. Okay. So carbohydrates is an unnecessary macronutrient. Your liver, your liver's number one. A lot of people think the liver's job is to filter out your weekend drinking, right? <laughs> you know, we always heard no, oh, the, li- the liver filters the time. Like you were saying, oh, liver filters toxins. And no, that, that's, that's one of the main it's jobs. one of the main, but it's not the main job. The main job of the liver is to produce glucose. Right. So if I, so how much do you weigh? Uh, Buck 80? My driver's license says 175 pounds, sir. Okay. <laughs> so in an average 180-pound male, if I could reach into your liver and just turn off the switch for gluconeogenesis, you'd be dead in six minutes. Six minutes. Six minutes. That's how much glucose your liver is making all the time. And it's making that glucose from protein and from fat in a process called gluconeogenesis. And it's not making it from carbohydrates. It's not making it from carbohydrates. So carbohydrates are unnecessary. They're they're bonus, right? So I think when we were hunters and gatherers and we had a massive amount of carbohydrates, like say you came across a batch of huckleberries. Right. right? Um, then you would you would engorge yourself. You know, and your and your satiety signals are different when you're eating carbohydrates. Like you get hungrier. You know, right. It's that kind of Chinese foods syndrome where you can eat and eat and eat and eat. <laughs> eat and feel full but still 100 percent hungry still when you're done you yeah. still be hungry yeah so you know that was probably beneficial for us as an organism because what it did is it spiked our insulin and insulin has two main jobs insulin's main role is putting glucose inside the cell the other thing that people don't realize insulin does is insulin creates fat okay so we make fat from uh glucose okay. we convert it to glycerin first and then that goes to a triglyceride and then triglycerides are stored in fat cells. Okay, so that's what happens when you eat a carb. That's what happens when you eat a simple carbohydrate, we should say. Because I, I would say there's there's simple carbohydrates and then there's complex carbohydrates or fiber would be a better way to put that. Okay, so then what happens, so your body takes that, that carb mm-hmm. and has to turn it into fat before it can be used. So what happens when you eat? fat and protein well your so your body could use your body could use that carbohydrate right away so it doesn't necessarily have to it could break it down to the simple sugars and you could right burn it, it, but it, if you didn't if it's not used immediately yes. yeah, it if goes it into is storage it goes into storage right yeah so so yeah so your body the way it's using fat and protein is is it's it's breaking down as constituent amino acids it's breaking down at constituent fatty acids so you've got your Alpha linoleic acids, you got your EPAs, you got your DHAs, you've got your long chain fatty acids, your medium chain, your short chain. So all of those are necessary for 
energy production. Uh, it's necessary to fuel your muscles. It's necessary to fuel your liver so your liver can now make glucose because glucose is really important for your brain. But yeah, the big lie back back in the what was it 35, 40 years ago was that oh we need need to we need to stop eating so much fat and, and cholesterol. Right. The fat we store in our body. In, in short, TLDR, the fat we store in our body is not the same as the fat we eat. And the fat that we eat from animals is not immediately stored in your body the same way as glucose, exactly. sugar, fat. So your Twinkie, yep. the Twinkie is not just sugar. And I think that's kind of one of the, the myth-lie things that people think is that, yeah, that's sugar. You can go and you can burn it off right away. It is actually stored as fat. And if you eat an egg that's full of fat, good fats. Yeah. That does not turn to fat in your body the same way. Right. And, it, and it's different satiety signals. So this is the whole, the, the other lie is that a calorie is a calorie is a calorie. You hear this. It's like, no, you know, a hundred grams of salmon is very different from a hundred grams of sugar. Yeah. It's good. I mean, yes, they're both a hundred grams, but the, you the could choke down a hundred grams of sugar and not know it. But if you try to choke down a hundred grams of salmon, you're going to be full. You're going to be full. Right. So you have, you have different hormonal signals in your body. You have different reactions to different of those, those macronutrients. So, so the way I always understood it and kind of like Tanya just, just explained it like, okay, I eat that Twinkie. If the energy in that Twinkie, the sugar is more than my body's needs, mm-hmm. my liver turns that into fat and stashes that somewhere in my body. Right. I mean, the basic 30,000 foot view. Yeah. But if I go out and say, I eat a cheeseburger or I just eat a piece of meat or a meat snack without, without a bunch of carbs and sugar and corn syrup and bread and shit, just, you know, just meat, protein and fat Mm -hmm. that gets stored in my stomach. And as my body needs that energy, the liver does that glyc gluconeogenesis. Thank you for that word. I would never have gotten it. I would have stumbled over that five. Gluconeogenesis. So your body does the gluconeogenesis process on the fats that are still just hanging around your stomach from that burger patty you ate and turns that into the six minute sugar. It could be also your stored fat too. So, so in our, in our practice, we use a lot of therapeutic ketosis. So ketogenic diets. Have you heard about ketogenic diets? I have, but probably not everybody listening to this says, tell us what a ketogenic diet okay. is. So there's two, two ways of thinking about a ketogenic diet. There's the classical keto, which was described in the medical literature 100 years ago, which is a very, very high-fat diet. It's so much fat that it's almost a gross amount of fat to eat. Um, and then that, what that would do is that would, that would shift the body into producing ketones as a primary fuel source. So ketones are fatty acids. Um, the, what we use is what I would call nutritional ketosis, which is we limit the carbohydrates so that we force the body into that state where it's utilizing and burning fat for fuel. Trying to gently nudge the body into ketosis instead of just throwing it all the way to the yeah, throwing they, it all the way to the far side. Well, and a lot of people who do this feel that thrown all the way to the false. We call that the carb valley or keto flu. You feel pretty crappy. If you've lived your whole life on simple carbohydrates and all of a sudden I take them away from you, you're going to, you're going to, for two weeks, you're going to suffer. And you're not going to leave the bathroom a whole lot from what I understand. Well, some people get constipated. Yeah. But that usually you can fix that with enough salt and water and fiber and other stuff. But so ketogenic diets, you know, we use those therapeutically and basically what we're doing is we're saying limit the amount of carbohydrates that you eat. So in a, in a typical ketogenic diet, you're going to eat less than 30 net carbs a day. So a, a net carb is very simply the total carbohydrates and subtracting the fiber. Right. So what we're saying is we're talking about the carbohydrates that actually are generating insulin. They're having an insulinogenic effect. Which is the non-dietary 
which is your, you know, just, it's basically your sugars. Like if you're, if you sugar starch, things like that. Yeah. Right. So like if you take an orange and you eat it, you're getting a lot of fiber and pulp and stuff that takes your body time to break down. If you drink orange juice, it's like mainlining the sugar. How much different does your body break down the sugar in say an apple off the tree versus apple juice that's got corn syrup added? Oh man. It's not it, like it's night and day difference. I mean, if you if you did a three hour glucose challenge test and measured insulin, it it's an unbelievable. You, they don't even look like they're in the same food category. Really? Yeah, it's li- literally your when your liver gets that hit of of high fructose corn syrup and concentrated apple juice, your liver does. It's like your liver goes, "Where in the world did this come from?" And it says, "Well, I'm gonna have to make it into fat because he's not." He's not burning any energy right now. He's he's sitting here at a table he's, pounding twelve yeah. ounce, doing twelve ounce curls. He doesn't need any energy. Yeah. So so you know we we tell people in our clinic we say, you know, drinking fruit juice is no different than drinking a large Coke. Even if it doesn't have corn syrup added to it, it still goes through your blood system like crack. Right. It goes through much there's faster. There's no fiber in it. Yeah. There's no fiber. It's 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 just it slams into your liver, and your liver is like, oh my gosh, we got to take care of this. So yeah, it's instead of buying the orange juice, go just go buy the orange. Right. So so then you start packing on fat and and then what happens then is you start getting this fat starts infiltrating your liver. And this is actually one of the most common things we see as people have liver, elevated liver enzymes. Used to be we we called it NAFLD, which is non-alcoholic fatty liver. Well, why did we call it non-alcoholic fatty liver? Because prior to this time we only saw it in terrible alcoholics. So we, okay. we, when we saw it, we go, oh, this guy obviously drinks a lot. And then they talk to him. And the guy goes, I ain't touched alcohol in 30 years. Oh, well, that's interesting. Why does your liver look Why like it? Why does your liver look like an alcoholic? So we had to come up with a new category, and we called it non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. But we now recognize that that's, that's a steatohepatitis. So you basically steato meaning fat, and then your body's just packing fat. What you're doing is you're making... You're, you're using college-level terms. Tell me what causes it. Okay, so... Let, before we say what causes it, let's see how we could create it in an animal. Okay. Because okay. this, is, this is a ranching reboot. So, yes, perfect. So pro, I don't know many of your listeners have heard of foie gras. But foie gras is um, a French delicacy. It's, yeah. it's a fatty goose pate or a, or a duck It's goose pate. liver, right? It's goose liver, yeah. So the fat and, of, and they get it fatty by literally stuffing grain down the goose's yeah. gullet right. they more a, than they want to eat. Yeah, they have a tube, and they basically force-feed the goose or force-feed the duck um, corn, So, which is just a simple carbohydrate for the most part. And they overfeed that duck to make fatty liver. So how do we make fatty liver in a human? It's the same way. We overfeed grain. We get too many simple carbohydrates, and then the energy expenditure is not there. You know, if you're a marathon runner, you're going to burn through that energy, no problem. You're not, your body's not going to take time to store it as fat. Yeah, and just to be clear, we're not just picking on corn farmers here, right? We're talking no. about grain, <laughs> grain, grain period. Is, yeah, or, yeah, just simple carbohydrates, grain, which, you know, most of the simple carbohydrates in the United States come from grain. I mean, we're, you know, and, and corn because of, I, mean, I don't know, maybe you'd probably know this better than I would, but I think it's because of the corn subsidies. We're growing way more corn than we really need. Uh, there's, I mean, it's amazing what you can make corn into. Well, right. they, they had to make corn and they had to figure out how to make corn into a lot of stuff because we had so much, we had so much yeah. and we had so much and the government, you know, through, through subsidies and crop insurance and price controls and, you know, this whole tangled obscene web of, of bureaucracy, the yeah. USDA and the FDA, 
you know, they, they've created all these programs in in the name of feeding the world, which is like this total BS myth. Like we can't even feed the community we're sitting in with things that are grown from within a hundred miles of here. We are not feeding the world. We're growing a bunch of corn to feed the frickin' cows that are standing in a feedlot that's just the absolute most grossest environment to grow a cow. Yeah. Unnatural environment to grow a cow. Like I think it's 40% of the U.S. corn crop right now goes to ethanol, which is absolute madness in itself. I mean, you're talking like the, the reduction in, in energy value for the price, like it, it requires more energy and cost to grow, process the corn, and turn it into ethanol than you actually get from the ethanol. It's not saving the environment. Well, you're adding carbon. Yeah, you're you're adding carbon. You're burning more diesel fuel to mm-hmm. create the same amount of road fuel, yeah. and it contributes to environmental degradation. But then they can turn around and say, "Oh well, we don't have a waste product from that. Our waste product is these spent distillers grains right. that we've taken all the alcohol and all the sugar out of, and we're going to feed that to cows. So yeah. that's not a waste product. You know, that's regenerative, right? <laughs> no, no, yeah, that's not good for the animal. Uh, yeah, it." it it can't be good for that. Even the spent distillers grains, yeah. you know, with a lot of the, you know, a lot of the carbs and the sugars taken out of them. Well, what's the point of feeding that? So why, why, when you have a concentrated feeding operation, like that you find out in Dodge or out, you know, in the Western part of Yeah, Kansas. we don't need to pick on any one of them by name. No, not, okay, so not of, by name, but there's a bunch of ugly ones. How, how, how long does a cow spend in a, in a cave foe? Well, like, you know, if you're going to finish a fat steer or fat heifer, you're probably looking at three, three months on the short end, six months on the long end. Okay, so let's say ninety days. Yeah, I mean, it basically the last, the last third or quarter of its life for a production animal. Yeah. So, well, so what happens at ninety days? I'm, I'm, an, I'm imagining that there's a a law of diminishing returns that comes in, meaning the longer you have that animal in the feedlot, the the more risk you are of losing the animal to disease because they're they're well i mean are yeah, they stressed get to the out point where they're so f- they get we talk about this like we've talked about this a little bit this lately. this is a can of worms and mm-hmm. i'm gonna get into it because i kind of got into a little bit on social media by the time this episode comes out on the podcast that that social media thing will be a couple weeks in the past okay, okay good so it, i think kfos are gross they're dying by the time they kill them, and if I mean, and yeah, it's not a hell. It's not so, how you would make a healthy cow. So I take I take one of my cows, I take one of my steers, and I send him to the feedlot. Yeah. Okay, and he he goes there, and let's just say that he comes off the risk, and he's not classified high risk, so he doesn't get antibiotics off the truck. All right, that's, that's another. The Some of, of them get antibiotics right before they even before they're in the lot. Uh-huh. I think a large percentage of them. And please write in or email me and tell me I'm wrong and prove it with receipts. But I've had a, I've listened to a feedlot vet mm-hmm. stand in front of a room. There's about a hundred of us in and say, we categorize everything into either high risk or low risk mm-hmm. coming off the truck. High risk animals get Draxin, which is the most powerful antibiotic that we can use for bovines. I mean, it's like, it's a tactical nuke. Mm-hmm. Or they get, uh, I think, Batril or Bactril, which is a pretty mild antibiotic. Now, is that antibiotic? That's a low-risk animal. So, does, does that antibiotic affect the bacteria in their rumen? You're the doctor, doctor. 
Well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know cows. I, I'm well, sure it I mean, does. Would I would it think it would. bacteria in my stomach? It would, 100%, yeah. 100%. You know, yeah. you feed, you give something a powerful antibiotic and it has antibiotic properties sure. in there. If it's, you know, supposed to kill bacteria, it's going to kill some of the gut flora, guaranteed. Yeah. So basically what I'm saying is, and I want to repeat this, is this feedlot vet said that every animal that got off the truck was either high risk or low risk. Not no risk. There was no such thing as a no risk animal. Yeah. It was either high risk or low risk, and they got one or two different categories of antibiotics. Okay, I get that. Yeah. I understand the numbers. I understand the labor. I understand the cost. I understand death loss. Yeah. But this is a problem that we've 100% created ourselves. Right. And then we have, you know, the commodity meat system says our meat's antibiotic free. Well, we got it. It's only antibiotic free because we trust the science and the science says that there's a withdrawal period that if they haven't had that needle in their neck for 90 days, that they're clean, right? They're antibiotic free. Gotcha. Yeah. That's a period of time. That doesn't mean from conception from or conception. Birth. They've never had. Yeah. I mean, huh. if I'm going to put my name on an animal and I'm going to sell that meat to my customers, which I will someday. Right. And I say that this meat is antibiotic free. It's antibiotic free. That doesn't mean that when it came off the truck at the feedlot because I thought it was a high-risk animal and it might get sick that I stuck it full of Draxin and I said that that's not subtherapeutic. Yeah. Okay? If they're sick, they're going to get antibiotics if I can't get them well by a holistic means. But I'm also not going to market that animal that I gave a dart of Draxin to two years ago as an animal that's antibiotic free because it's not. Not technically, yeah. What's now? Tell me, do they still are antibiotics still added to animal feed? Because I at one time I had heard a statistic that the, the majority of antibiotics in the United States actually go into animal feed. Eighty percent of the antibiotics consumed in this country go to animals, go to livestock. Eighty percent of the antibiotics in this country go to livestock, doc. Wow! And you know, like you're in the medical industry. Yeah, I don't and, have to tell you how many like tons that is yeah and there's been a real big move in the medical industry to move away from antibiotics i mean we really try not to use antibiotics you guys have made people mad this year by the way (laughs) i have so many mom friends that are mad that they're taking their kids to the doctor and they won't give them an antibiotic dang it and i'm always so happy we're we're an hour and 15 minutes into this i bet we just made a whole bunch of more people mad Well, and, and I don't want to. I, I, I don't want to vilify drug development. I mean, I think there's some amazing drugs, and I use medications. I don't want to make it sound like I, I can't. You know, I'm not fixing problems by rubbing crystals on people. I mean, every once in a while, I've got to pull a amoxicillin out of the out of the cabinet. So I'm glad it's there. But it's a tool. It's a tool, right? And and you got to know when's the appropriate time to use that tool. And but it sounds like in the feed industry, the antibiotics are used indiscriminately, almost. Hammers on feed. almost, and they'll try to say. I'm having a big problem, you know, like understanding that almost every animal that gets off the truck at a feedlot classified as high risk and gets antibiotics, but then they turn around into the other corner of their mouth. They say, we don't use sub, it's not prophylactic and it's not subtherapeutic. So what is it? Are we, Yeah. What are, are you all the animals coming off the truck that you've never seen before? you're automatically assuming they're sick and giving them Draxin and calling them sick animals or are you using it prophylactically? And what, what are they looking at when they, when the cow comes off, I mean, are they looking in the cow's throat and in its ears and saying, Oh, it looks like an infection or taking a rectal temperature or are they just eyeballing it and saying that cow looks like it's got a runny nose. Let's give it an antibiotic. There's a super smart guy in the pen that sorts cows like that. Usually. No, I think what happens is they don't even, they don't even look. 
Well, I don't. Here's what happens. They know where they came from. So if, if you've got a buyer that's sitting in a sale barn in say Woodward, Oklahoma, right. And he's got an order from a feedlot to put together five truckloads of cows or five truckloads of steers. Okay. He's going to do that. He's going to fill his order and he's not going to know each one of those five trucks might have 10 different ranches that gave that had five cows eat, had five steers each. Okay. So there could be, you know, 20 different ranches represented on these five trucks. They don't know how those ranches took care of their calves. The guy, the order buyer. Yeah. All he cares to hear is two rounds of vaccine. He's not going to write down which ones. Right. Because he's not going to care because the feedlot that told him to pick up those steers, they're not going to care because as soon as those calves get there, they're just going to shove a needle in their neck and pump them full of antibiotic. Because they don't want to lose that. Because they want to ensure, they want to, just clean everything. Yeah. They want to nuke everything to bears to nothing, then let it onto their yard. So they think they have a totally clean yard without any disease. Right. What happens? What happens when you have an environment like that? You, you set up an environment that you try to get all the pathogens out of and try to keep it totally clean, yeah. but you're out in nature with living organisms. Yeah. Something gets in, that's resistant to your, your vaccine program or your antibiotic program. Mm-hmm. You know, what, well, and you're what's not, that scenario like doc? Yeah. So, well, I mean, it's a recipe for disaster because you're now selecting for the, the pathogens that will, will get past that antibiotic. Yep. You've, you've that's, created a selection pressure and it's a, it's the same thing we've been doing this last two years. It's I mean, like vaccinating during the COVID pandemic. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, I, I followed Geert Vandenbosch who was a vaccine developer and his whole career was in vaccine development. And he said early on, I, wa- I watched a lecture he was giving, and he said it's a really bad idea to vac- mass vaccinate in the middle of a pandemic. And he gave, he gave an example of a, of a, bird, a bird illness, Merrick's disease. Does that sound familiar yep, to you guys? I've, yeah. yeah, so I guess, there's this, I guess there's this thing that chickens get that's called Merrick's. And if you vaccinate while Merrick's is spreading in your flock, you'll make it worse because it'll cause mutations. The virus will try to, to work around the vaccine. Well, they'll see that the chickens that have the strongest viruses in their body are the ones that are going to live and stay sick. Right. Yeah. Right. It'll, you're, you're going to select for a more virulent pathogen. So, so he, he, I remember him saying this and I remember thinking, Oh, well, that's interesting. I haven't heard anybody else say that. And I thought, well, you know, one thing is we're going to find out. We and, found out, didn't and we? We found out. Right. And so we're at the point now where vaccine efficacy, I think the latest pediatric trial vaccine efficacy was under 40%, which means relative risk reduction of the vaccine was less than 40%. The, by the way, the emergency use authorization set a threshold in the adult trials of 50%. Okay. You didn't get at least 50% vaccine efficacy, which, which is relative risk reduction. This is complicated statistics but relative risk means relative to the treatment the group that didn't get the vaccine then they they were like you're not going to get emergency use authorization and you know the news was oh it's 97 percent effective yeah i remember hearing that (laughs) and saying nothing's 97 percent that's a lie nothing is 97 percent i go that's remarkable and, you know, again, I was watching this kind of thing. When you well, hear that, you know they're playing with the data. Well, it, it, it at least makes your eyebrow go up and say, huh, 97%. So I, I dug into that study and looked and said, okay, what were they talking about? And I was like, oh, they're talking about relative risk reduction of 97%. I said, well, let's look through the 
back of the paper and see what the absolute risk reduction is. Meaning, meaning if I get, if I vaccinate you, what's what's the absolute risk that I've dropped you down? The absolute risk reduction was less than a percent. Now, how how would that have gone over in the mainstream media and the news? And oh, our vaccine came in at point nine seven percent absolute. It, it, risk reduction. People would be like, I'm not going to do it for 0.97%. So in redneck dummy talk, that's a 1% less chance of getting sick. Yeah, less than 1% chance. Your absolute risk reduction is if I give you this intervention, I've dropped your risk from whatever it was down another percent. Which, if you're a very sick person, that percent would be meaningful. I mean, it could matter. You yeah, know, if we're, if we're talking 2% to 1%, that's a big difference. If we're talking 95% to 94%, right. that's irrelevant. Well, and so what we were sold is that this vaccine is 97% effective. And people thought, well, that means that it's just going to work almost 100%. And even Fauci said, he, there's a couple of clips of him saying it's virtually 100% effective. And, you know, when he said that, I thought, man, this is this is a tricky area to go into because over time, I think we're going to find that this vaccine is not working as well as we thought. And then what's going to happen? You're going to people aren't going to trust your message anymore, which is where we are today. It's absolutely where. And I'm I can honestly say I'm thankful for that. I see more people questioning, asking the questions that you guys in your practice are wanting people to ask than I yeah. ever, ever have in my life. And for reasons totally outside of politics, which is a nice change yeah. to see. Now, I guess I have to say, you know, got to just say the disclaimer. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, right? Everybody has to say that, you know. I don't have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Me, meaning I think, you know, there, there's vaccines that are good. But I, I'm also not in that category that says just because it's a vaccine, I'm going to do it. It's, it's like, a, no, it's, it's an, a tool. It's a tool. Well, and when they change different. And they change the definition of vaccine. They did. And like. They just kind of like we changed the definition of vaccine and just went right on past it and didn't even. They said that vaccine basically changed to something that generates an immune response. That's how they did. Talk about setting the lowest bar possible. Well, that makes a lot of cool stuff happen for like homeopathic medicine then because all of that's what all of that is. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Maybe all of that could be considered a vaccine now. Yeah, so you're right. They've completely changed that and broadened that definition because otherwise you would would have to call it what it is experimental is gene therapy gene therapy go ahead spotify flag me with another covid warning see if i care <laughs> <laughs> but it's tr- it's true i mean these these experiments are are still ongoing they don't finish up until march of next year people forget that the original trials are still ongoing and i, I remember i was watching um somebody on cnn well the pandemic's over yeah it's over now right but I was watching some in CNN and they were asking uh, an FDA regulator and they were like, they were kind of banging the table saying like, why did it take so long for us to get this vaccine? And the expression on the guy's face was this guy's kind of got a little bit wide. And I, and as soon as I saw that, I looked and I go, I know exactly what's going through that guy's mind. He's thinking this guy has no idea how long it normally takes to approve a drug. The fastest drug we've ever developed was, you know, three years, most vaccines, eight to 18 years. Right. Of development. So to get something in 18 months is not warp speed. It's like time travel. Okay. Right. And like we were saying like, well, okay, it's safe and effective, safe and effective. I go, well, but safe means we know it doesn't cause harm in the long run. Yeah. You cannot say that because it hasn't been here. It just baffled me <clears throat> how many very educated, very intelligent, and I don't mean like just book smart people, but people with common sense would say it's safe it's been proven safe and effective yeah number one if that's the case why were they studying this long enough ago 
to know that. Number two, it's not the case. Yeah. It's clearly not the case. So how, yeah. So how now we have a black box warning that says- Why are you convincing yourself? Oh, it can this? cause myocarditis and we're arguing about whether we should vaccinate kids. And so, so I, I mean, I don't want to take you down the path of getting canceled here, but <laughs> it, it's been a crazy year. I think Joe Rogan on a lot of his podcasts with some of the guests that he's done had, he cracked the seal. Yeah. yeah, he he. I think he did a better job, right, of of talking about a lot of those things than than we're going to get accomplished here. Sure. I mean, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think you know you you look at the uh, you know Robert Malone has been a very polarizing figure, but I mean it, the, you can't say that he he did it for the money. I mean, Robert Malone is. I mean, he lost his has bid for a Nobel prize. He's, he's lost a lot. He's lost a lot, you know, and, and I, and I met with Peter, um, Peter McCullough, a cardiologist out of Dallas. He was in Wichita and, and I sat down with him for about an hour and a half. And, and I will tell you, he, that guy has been persecuted. I mean, he, he's, he's actually at the point where he's like, i maybe I need to figure out how to make a living if I lose, lose my medical license. Right. So to say that this is a grifter who's making money off of anti-vax rhetoric is absolutely false. No, this is someone who is, deeply conscientious and and is deeply convicted and and really truly cares about it's taking a huge risk human health yeah speak oh, he, up like this. well he lost he lost his he lost two professorships he lost his um his editorial position at the uh journal that he was an editor of and he lost his job at baylor uh baylor medical system so i mean he he's lost a lot but yet he's still saying the same thing. It's like, hey, early treatment works. So I th- that's where we got on this whole subject was saying, you know, that was something during the pandemic because I was very aggressive in saying, I want to use every tool we can to help people with COVID. So whether it's vitamin C, vitamin D, zinc. Food you know, in general. You talked the, about the, food and. The medication you can't say the name of anymore. <laughs> uh, the horse dewormer? Yeah, I can the, say ivermectin. You can say ivermectin. Yeah. Um no, you t- were talking about when we were up in Wichita about wanting to have food in your clinic. And that yeah. was like, that was, I mean, what doctor wants food? Now? Well, we, <laughs> like, that's amazing. Yeah. It's like the second time I've just about been able to make a segue into food as medicine. Yes. And, and start talking about what's wrong with our food. Yeah. So I think the, the thing that I've seen with food, and, and, and this was really evident during the pandemic when I went to the store and they didn't have chicken. I was like, I've never been to the store where you can't buy something. It's just always there. We right. take it for granted. And and I, I thought, oh, man, maybe we're not as food safe as we think we are. Like, maybe I need to start thinking about growing my own food. Or maybe I need to go get a couple cows and put them out on my pasture. Right. Um, I certainly know I, ne- I need to grow a garden. And so I started thinking about, okay, what are the barriers to entry for me doing that? And how do, how do I help my patients do that? So... You know, it's, and again, what primarily I do as a doctor is I'm just a problem solver, trying to find solutions to problems that people have. So one of the problems people have is we we need to def- redefine what healthy food is. So I, I always say healthy food is not out of a, I think I borrowed this from my dad, but it said it's not out of a bag, a box, a can, over the counter, or through a window. Okay. And if it has more than five ingredients, you should question whether it's food. I think that's one of Michael Pollan's food rules. He wrote great book called Omnivore's Dilemma, and he's written some really fantastic books. I'm, I'm taking notes. Taking notes. Yeah. Good stuff. So if, and then the other thing I tell people is if there's an ingredient on the label that you don't have that in your pantry, right? If you read something, you're like, I don't even know what this is. Where, then don't eat that. That's probably not food. You mean nobody has – you mean you don't have lake number 40 yellow in your <laughs> – Not that I know of. 
or you know yeah. blue number seven yeah <laughs> you don't no, have that i don't think so yeah you don't you no don't keep FDC a jar you don't keep a jar five. of monosodium glutamate yeah that spice i think you can actually buy yeah yeah you can buy it yeah but but you're but you're right i mean so so it's trying to 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 educate people because again my we have to educate that's what doctor means doctor comes from the latin word docere which means to teach okay so i actually never knew that yeah so so our job is not to prescribe our job is to teach and used to be before there was widespread medical usage or medicine to use that doctors prescribe diets. Like I mentioned, the ketogenic diet, it's in the medical literature a hundred years ago. Well, if we follow the analogy that food is medicine, that's what a doctor should do is teach you how to eat to better take care of the machine that you're living in and, and how to take care of it. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I get frustrated when I hear doctors say, well, it doesn't matter what you eat. And I say, okay, let's think about this. <laughs> Every meal you eat goes through your stomach and into your small bowel. And in your small bowel, you have these, villi, these little finger-like projections that increase the surface area of the gut for absorption. The surface area of that small bowel in an adult is two tennis courts. And and the distance, the, the thickness of that cell layer that's the barrier between the inside world and the outside world is half the width of a human hair. So every every time we eat, our food is spread out over the surface area of two tennis courts that's half a width of a human hair away from 70% of our immune system. How can it not matter what we eat? It has to matter. It absolutely has to matter. Yeah. So when you when you look at most of the problems facing Americans and obesity being the top of the list because obesity you know leads to heart disease, obesity leads to a lot of other problems. Is that we have to begin thinking how are we going to fix this metabolic mess that we're in, and so we've got to do it with food. So like I I was telling you at lunch today, the biggest lie in medicine today is the lie that. Type 2 diabetes is a chronic disease that needs medic, medical management, chronic medical management. Go on. Which means more pills, more syringes. How much, how much does insulin cost these days? It depends what kind of insulin you're talking about. You, can, you could go buy a bottle of insulin at Walmart okay. right now without a prescription okay. for about 10 bucks. Okay. And that's, that's, an, that's a very old form of insulin. And that'd probably last me, what, a month? Well, it depends how much sugar you drink. I guess I guess it doesn't matter since I'm not diabetic. But it, yeah. Go on. I can, I can buy over-the-counter insulin without a prescription for, let's just say, 10 bucks. Yeah. But the, the real question is, so for, and, and to be clear, I'm talking about type 2 diabetes, right? The diabetes. Right. The, the lie that we have to manage that with medication and then it's a chronic disease, that's a lie because it's completely reversible with diet. So if I if I take someone who's a type two diabetic with a you just upset a whole bunch of people. I do, and I I feel I feel sometimes I feel bad because I say these things and I know they're thinking hey, this is this is nuts. I'm don't like, don't feel bad well, for challenging somebody's paradigm yeah. because if someone is offended by what you or I or anybody else has to say, we're just challenging their belief structure. Right, and there's people who just can't tolerate having their belief structure challenged at all. Well, and what I tell them is look. You know, come come to my practice. I'll show you. I mean, I've got hundreds of patients that I've been able to take who have A one Cs, and A one C is a hemoglobin. A one C is basically a measurement of how much glucose is stuck to your hemoglobin molecule. How much sugar is in your blood? In your in the hemoglobin of your blood, which is your red blood cell. Now, why do we measure that? Well, your red blood cell, on average, lives about ninety days. Okay, bone marrow kicks a new one out. It lives for ninety days. Gets ragged. Your spleen chews it up. 
And so when we look at the percentage of glycosylation of that protein, we're getting a kind of a snapshot of what did the last 90 days in your diet look like? Glycosylation of the protein. What's stickiness? That? Stickiness okay. of the protein. Think of just like how much sugar is stuck to that protein. Okay. So a diabetic is, we define it as having an A1C over 6.7% or 6.8%. Okay. It's this arbitrary line we draw in the sand. So meaning the day before your A1C was 6.4, you weren't diabetic. The day after I measure it, it's now 6.8, you are diabetic. Well, what really changed? Nothing. It just, you got a little bit more glycosylation. I had a Snickers bar. So, uh, you know, drugs that knock it out of the park claim that they can lower an A1C by a fraction of a percent. And they and that's like a success. Well, I can take someone who has an A1C of 10 or 11, which is double what that should be. Okay. And in a ketogenic diet for three months, if they follow the plan... I can normalize that A1C. That A1C can look non-diabetic. And take them off insulin. Take them off insulin. In fact, the, the reality is most type 2 diabetics are making way too much insulin. So I measure their insulin. It should be around 6 to 9. And I'll measure the insulin. It's 26. Fasting. This is before they've even eaten a meal. No, God knows what it does after they eat a meal. So that person's resistant to the insulin that they're making. So their body has to make more and more. It has to keep turning the dial up right. to get the same effect. So the, the the type two diabetic doesn't need insulin, and that that was where I realized why am I giving these people insulin? They're making boatloads of it. That's not the problem. They're not insulin deficient. A type one diabetic is insulin deficient. Right, they, they'll die without it. So that's where we just started saying well, we got we got to attack this with diet, and we got to attack it with lifestyle changes. And then what what's fun is that you can do those labs and you measure and you show patients. Hey, look what your A1C is now. It came down. Look at your fasting insulin. You brought it from 26 down to 12. And then we check it again. It's down to six. And now, now it's down to four. It's down to three. And they're starting to they're starting to lose weight. They're starting to feel better. They're starting to say, you know, I want to start adding exercise in. Well, that'll make everything go even faster. So you create this snowball effect in the right direction when you start with food. And that's the opposite place from where probably 90% of your colleagues will start is they want to start with a pill or with a needle or with some more tests and not worry about the food because what you eat doesn't matter. Carbs are carbs. Right. Yeah. Or they'll say, you know, just eat a balanced diet. Nobody knows what a balanced diet yeah, is what, anymore. Yeah. What is a balanced diet? Yeah. Write that down for me. <laughs> yeah. Is it the food pyramid? Because that's, that's clearly did not do well for us over the last 40 years. I think just changing to where you're eating with intention, even if, you know, it doesn't matter what you eat. Well, maybe it doesn't necessarily matter exactly what you eat, but the intention behind the food you're choosing and when you're eating and why you're eating and how you're eating. Or, or, you know, one of the things that there was a study that looked at people who just sat down at a table and ate and, and looked at the difference of somebody grabbing a fast food and eating in their car. And metabolically, you you metabolize differently when you sit down and enjoy a meal. Enjoy a meal rather than snarf food for only fuel. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I, I bet shoveling you, food in. I bet you if you take that experiment and repeat it between a guy that's eating a cheeseburger in his car in between meetings mm-hmm. and a family that sits down mm-hmm. and joins hands and prays and then shares a meal – I bet you'd find, I bet you'd have some really interesting results. Yeah, it's a difference. And, and in Europe, you know, Europeans, I think when they sit down and eat at a restaurant, I mean, it could be two or three hours that they're sitting it's down. It's an event. It's an event. Care. It's a whole evening. I remember I, w- I went to Greece when I was in college, studied there in uh, abroad for a, a month, and we sat down at a table for dinner with a bunch of friends, and it took like 
20 minutes for the waitress to even come out. And I was like, what is taking so long? And, you know, it was another 20 minutes before their drinks came out. It it took four and a half hours for us to finish that meal. And it's still in my mind one of the best meals I've ever had. It probably had very little to do with food. Yeah, I don't even remember really what was on the menu. But what I remember was we were outside under a tree in, in Greece at the foot of the Parthenon or wherever we were. And we're laughing or talking and we're eating and it's a it's a whole celebration of of life at that point right i mean i don't want to get sappy with it but it was a really it was a it was a meal it was a feast right right and that's different from you know that that's maybe that's the difference from you know like concentrated feeding operation right they're just going in there and just chowing down there's a there's a happy medium there too because i grew up in a restaurant family so Uh we we like eat for everything yeah so i've always been the short fat girl i like food you know (laughs) and it's not hard for me to like make every occasion about food and around food so every family function we had we did have a feast right and so and then i met brian and they kind of don't eat like that they eat more for fuel and don't have like these big huge shindigs so we've sort of found a happy medium where we eat for fuel with purpose more often and like growing my raising my daughter we didn't sit at the table a lot we would gather in the kitchen and kind of graze on whatever we had that was healthy and, and spend the time together to do that. But it kind of was a, it was a difficulty for me going the opposite way where everything was about food and it wasn't necessarily about enjoying the food. It was like we couldn't gather without having the food. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for some people, food is an emotional thing. I mean, they eat when they're stressed and yeah. And, you know, that getting into the whole stress signals and what that does to our body is, is a whole nother conversation that we can have. Well, I mean, it, it is kind of nice to curl up on the couch with a carton of ice cream and just, you know, <laughs> eat it while you cry all your problems away. Not saying I ever do that or ever have. Right. It's, it's also an awesome thing to spend a really intentional two or three or four hours with your family and cook and share a meal. And Yeah. That, if that's the thing I could get families back to, you know, if, if I can get people raising food in their backyard and, and making food, what I, what I like to say is I want to help make food a more local phenomenon, right? And so that's why I started reaching out to guys like you, regenerative farmers, because I've got patients who need access to good and high quality um you know, grass-fed, truly grass-fed, grass-finished beef. And, you know, and I, and I learned very quickly grass-fed, everything's technically grass-fed in the United States because they all have eaten grass at some point. Yeah, and you can't trust labels anymore. You can't trust labels, that's for sure. No. So and you want to get to know your farmer. Meet and we meat. all need to we all need to start making friends with farmers. And we need to, because, and you guys, you guys are suffering, right? I mean, I've seen it. Depression, the burnout. I mean, oh, and, and as all the inflation that's come up in the last couple of months really starts to settle in and the higher input costs start to settle in on a lot of guys. It's going to get dark. It's going to get really dark for a lot of guys. And so I think if we can connect, if we can start connect, so if I can connect my people with your people and say, hey, go find a farmer, get on their list for a cow, you know, get a custom cut, buy a big freezer, plan ahead. And get to know your farmer. Ask him questions like we did today. I went out and I saw your operation. I mean, you're practically kissing your cows when they're coming up to. <laughs> literally, not practically. Uh, literally, I have literally. pictures of it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and the ear, I could tell. I mean, as soon as we came over that ridge, your cows love you. He loves them, too. Yeah, you're calling them out by name. You're whistling <laughs> to him. Hey, Ginger, come over here. Hey, Carrot Topper. And it wasn't Carrot Topper. Peaches, Look, peaches. Curly, Mo, Curly was the one that Steve. Like yeah. yeah. That's my name for that one. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> but, you know, that that's, I think, again, we've got to think about making food 
a bigger part of our lives. Well, like, like Tanya said, meet your meat. That's something that, you know, we hear in the community. I'm a big fan of saying, shake the hand that feeds you. Yeah. And I feel like, and I say it's find out what your food's eating. Yep. Yep. That too. And you know, the whole shake the hand that feeds you, I think nicely wraps up and puts a bow on a lot of concepts because you know, like we talked about, you know, antibiotic use in a feedlot. Right. I'm not going to put my name on that. Mm-hmm. If you want to, you can come meet me. You can come shake my hand mm-hmm. and I will spend all of the time that you want. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about cows. We'll talk about grass. We'll talk about how I took care of them and how I cared for them and how I provided for them their and, whole life. And, and I, I, and I want to share that story with the people that want to consume my product. Yeah. And, and I think also going back to soil, you're making better soil. At the end of the, we are soil. We have to be. I mean, the soil is our start mm-hmm. and our end. Yeah. We come from soil and we will all be soil. <laughs> dust to dust. I mean, when I die, don't put me in a crematorium. Like, just wrap me up in a paper sack yeah. and throw me in a hole and let me be worm food and continue part of the cycle. You, Don't fill me full of embalming fluid. <laughs> yeah, you, you can actually buy a pine box casket from Costco. Nice. And special order them. <laughs> uh, with the cost of everything else in the medical industry, I can't imagine the end of life industry. Their costs are going down either. No. Yeah, the end of life industry is an interesting one. It is fascinating what we do to our bodies after death. It is weird. Yeah, like we're going to we're going to buy this $10,000 box that's really really ornate that's uh-huh. nice and padded inside. We're going to get we're going to put on this nice tuxedo and <laughs> lay down in this box that's going to get thrown in a hole in the ground that nobody's ever going to see again. Not even a hole in the ground. It's thrown into a concrete box in the ground. Yep. Right. <laughs> I mean, I guess we could look at the mummies and think the same thing. You know, they, I mean, at least we, we get dressed up fancy. They took all kinds of stuff. With them, True. So. But wasn't it just the kings they mummified? Yeah, I don't know. It wasn't the common man, was death it? No, just, it, it definitely wasn't the common. The celebration yeah. of like the death of the human form, like of the bag of bones we are is weird to me. Too. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I've seen some pushes to, to bring back the old fashioned wake, you know, where the body laid in state. Yeah. Meaning, you know, you die in your bed, you stay in your bed. You know, family comes up and cleans you up. And, you know, it's not like you're immediately a health hazard minutes after you die. Right, right. You, you've a got a couple days before decomposition starts setting in. Right? Colder climates, maybe a few more. Maybe a few more days. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but, but giving time for people to see that, that I, you know, I guess I think that and everybody's different about this. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be critical, but I think when, when you see a dead body who's been embalmed and makeup is put on and, and you're trying to, mimic what they were in life but i think what we need to do with human as humans is say that person's gone they're not that, that anymore that, yeah that, that that soul has left and that and that physical being is on its way to being something else and that's and don't why you they think, look different because they're supposed to look yeah different. and don't don't you think maybe that maybe helps us get through the grieving process faster because you don't see that you're burying your person right you see you look at that and say oh yeah they're gone I can, st- I can start releasing that. I can start letting go of that. But yeah, I, I agree. I think I've, you know, I'd, I'd rather just be planted in the field and be, you know, food for worms that feed the grass and then hopefully get, you know, better, better mycorrhizal growth out of me. Exactly. That's what we need. Turn I, me to mushrooms. I, I have to do this. So we're sitting here in the Eastus Media Studio in Pratt, Kansas, and I just saw somebody walk by wearing a Great Plains Regeneration shirt. 
Really? That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I had to. Yeah. The message is getting out. The message is getting out. So, Jess Nad, you're being heard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I really do love what the regenerative movement is doing. And I, you know, I kind of came to it through listening to Joel Salatin talk. And, you know, and like I told you, I, was, I started reading some books that not, not many doctors are probably reading, like Gabe Brown's book, uh, Dirt to Soil. And, um, Pretty common recommendation Hob, on this podcast. Yeah, Hobbes turned me on to uh, Johann Zeitzman wrote Man Cattle Veld. That's an interesting book. Um, uh, Johann Zeitzman, Man Cattle and Veld. Yeah. Veld. Yeah. And then um, Alan Savory is another interesting guy that's in that. He's done some TED Talks that I happen to listen to. So interesting is one way to uh, to describe Alan Savory. Yes. Yeah. And well, and and, uh, and I think what I've learned is that similar to my business that there's not one way of doing things, right? I mean, the way Joel does things is going to be different from the way that, you know, Jayco farm and, and Yoder does yep. it. And we, it's going to be different from how Red Hills rancher does it. And, and it's all comes down to context. Yeah, we've talked yeah. about that a lot because what works in my backyard, that's seven miles away from his ranch. I don't garden the same way he ranches. Yeah. I, I, and that it was remarkable driving up. Cause I have not been to this part of Kansas before, not back in these, I've driven through Pratt many times. You've but never seen the red Hills, never seen the red Hills oh, cool. before. And I was like, man, this is gorgeous out here, but it is a different terrain. Yeah. Yeah. It's you rough. Know, and, and moving cat. I mean, there's a couple times we're going down into those culverts and I'm thinking, I don't know if this thing's going to flip over or not. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that because he yeah. gives me a hard time every time I go, <gasps> No, I, I try. I just hung on to the handle, but I was like, "Well, he knows what he's." He you're not. See, he didn't I didn't say, see. Why you, are you hanging on? I didn't see you sweating, so I figured we're going to be okay. Don't get nervous until I get nervous. <laughs> we're fine. Yeah, but it is very rough. Yeah, it's, it's rough, really but it's rugged. That. But it, but there's beauty out there. You know, and I think the people who think Kansas is flat, I'm like, yeah. Well, most of Colorado is flat too. Right. But they don't, they're not seeing the part of Kansas that most people aren't seeing. Yeah, like there's we, a we, whole eastern two-thirds of Colorado that's flatter than a pancake. Flatter than a pancake, Looks yeah. just like Kansas. Well, and, and, and of course, we're going to put highways in the areas where it's flattest, right? Well, it's yeah. Because it's going to be easiest to make those roads. So, yeah, yeah you know, so it was fun. I enjoyed the drive this morning. But but you're right. I was driving past all these monoculture row-cropped fields, and I'm thinking, how, there's not not even a weed growing out there. Yeah, that's going has that been pretty recent that you've just been able to kind of see that and it yeah man that's going to change like in six months from now you're going to be driving around in an area of the country where you six months ago would have thought man it's so beautiful it's spring look at all the corn and the wheat and you're going to be out there going oh my gosh there's not a bug to be seen right this used to be beautiful and now it makes me sick to my stomach and it's terrifying yeah when when we moved out to the country um almost 10 years ago well, it was about nine years ago um the it was remarkable because we, we sit on about 28 acres. That's um, most of it is native prairie. And uh, we had a guy from the Kansas uh, grassland society, wildflower society, come down and do a survey. It was really fun walking through the fields with him and he was picking up stuff and he'd say, here, chew on this and a little flower. I'm like, Oh, it tastes like pepper. He's like, yeah. Well, then he named the plant and he'd pick this up. I'm like, what kind of grass is that? And he goes, that's not a grass. That's a sedge. And I go, Oh, what's the difference? You know, I don't know. <laughs> and he, he said something that was really remarkable. He goes, you know, a hundred years ago, kids would have been able in high school would have been able to identify all of these plants and tell you which ones were invasive, which ones were medicinal, which ones were edible and which ones you couldn't eat. That was one of my favorite things in homeschool 
mm, Krista was in sixth grade. Yeah. So we studied botany, and that's what we we go outside and look at that. And we've so we've lost that literacy. Like I I don't want to jump in the truck and like go screaming down this interstate highway of how the educational standards have completely gone away in the last hundred years. But yeah. you're right. Like the average college graduate today mm-hmm. probably would have trouble with the eighth grade finals exam from 1935. Well, and, and I'm even just food literacy. Like yeah. uh, there, there was in the inner cities of New York, they, they brought in zucchini and rutabaga and squash and held them up. Does anybody know what this is? They didn't know what it was. They'd never seen vegetables. Food deserts, like they're this. Yeah. yeah, it's all processed food. Like that that study I was sharing with you that uh, came general. out of Tufts University that said we're now at a point where two thirds of adolescents' calories are from ultra refined carbohydrates. Dollar General food, and they're on every yeah. corner. And then so, remember, but, the ultra refined carbohydrate is the one macronutrient you don't actually need. And what is that doing to to things like obesity rates, people getting diabetes? heart disease, having liver disease. What yeah. is what is, what are these ultra through, refined through the roof? So now the number one reason for liver transplant is not Tylenol or al- overdose or alcohol. It's fatty liver disease from eating excessive carbohydrates. Um, you know, and so you talk about just the problem of obesity, my kids and I, I've, I grew up on star Wars, loved the movies as a kid. I mean, I, some of my earliest memories are going to the star Wars movies and my kids fell in love with star Wars. So we we're big star Wars fans in our family. And we were, the kids and I were watching, uh, Bob, the book of Boba Fett. I don't know. It's a show you've seen, but Boba Fett was like but one of my favorite. I'm, I'm a huge star Wars nerd, but some of the new expanded universe stuff, like the, yeah. uh, the Mandalorian, like Mandalorian, the new Boba Fett stuff. I, yeah. I'm kind of out on that. I think Disney ruined most of the franchise with the last three movies. Yeah, I would agree, but I would say The Mandalorian, that's a... Uh, uh, what was Rogue One? Rogue One was... I Rogue One was definitely worth watching. I loved it. I know it didn't get it didn't get a lot of fan service, but I love the fact that when it ended, it was like, well, you knew those people weren't coming back. And you know... It, Spoiler alert. It, it, it was a great... <laughs> Yeah, welcome to welcome to the Star Wars podcast. <laughs> I thought it was a great way to tie in and wrap up everything that happened, you know, in to kind of in bridge, movie three, right? To bridge that with episode four that came out back in seventy seven. I think it was a wonderful yeah. bridge, and it it brought a it brought a lot of things out in the story that we didn't hear. Yeah. And maybe I guess like where I can go with that to tie that back to today's conversation is similarly, you know, we're discovering things that we thought we knew about nutrition and they're coming back to light, and they're changing the entire story as we thought we knew it. Yeah. Well, so where I was going with that is is at the end of one of the Boba Fett episodes, there's bonus material that you can watch, and um, it was an interview with George Lucas about the character Boba Fett and how they came up with him and how they were designing his costume. And in in it, George Lucas says, oh, and we took Boba Fett actually to a parade in California, small town California, and he walked down the street, Main Street, with Main Street, much like this, that's right out here, and with Darth Vader right by his side. And this was before the character was even introduced in the movies, right? But what was remarkable about watching that scene, that parade, was the people. So there's tons of kids running around, most of them with their shirts off because it's summertime. There was not one overweight kid in the crowd. Hmm. And I couldn't find an obese adult watching the parade either. Now, California classically has been on the healthier end. And this would have been like the 1977 to 1979 timeframe because that's when the movies came out. That's exactly right. So before, you know, 
before we really had the, you know, it took us, it takes about 10 years once you make a policy change for it to really show up. In when did the food diet. pyramid come out? Was that early 80s? Oh, I think that's a good question. That was before my time, so I don't know. I think it was the 70s, like late 70s, early 80s. A lot of this stuff came out of the McGovern Council on Food, which is really where we started saying, like, how we're going to tell Americans how to eat. And that happened, like, through the 70s, and that gave us us the food pyramid. and and Yeah, so by mid-80s, we're full swing, you know, Entman's Bakery. Remember that? So i got to tell a little story here. So I'm a child of the 80s. The food pyramid was 92. Oh, really? Yeah, and I remember when they introduced that and all of those nutrition facts. And well, stuff. well, thanks for looking that up, Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jamie, look that up. <laughs> Everybody needs a Jamie on their podcast. Oh, I wish I had one. Gosh, well, I wish I, I had. I mean, yeah, you just Google it. I love. But he does. Jamie does more than just Googling stuff. Like he yeah, does all the he does the producing and editing. So Joe yeah, can just stand up and walk all out. All I do is Google stuff. I don't do anything behind the yeah. scenes at all. It's okay, we we can have the light version of Jamie. I don't yeah. do anything at home. <laughs> uh, gosh, what were what were we talking about? You were saying you're about to tell a story. What story was I going to tell? Oh, uh, I remember now. So I'm a child of the '80s. Yes, and uh, so food pyramid in '92. Mm-hmm. I remember I was probably. Gosh, four or five years old. So this would have been like 1982, 1983. If you're good at math, you can tell exactly how old I am. And I I think I've told this story before on the podcast. If I haven't, I'm boring you. Go ahead and skip forward about two minutes. So I grew up eating like things like turkey and cheese sandwiches mm-hmm. on whole wheat bread. Yeah. Okay. Because this was like through the 70s and early 80s, my parents were kind of like, they were they were trying to be hippies and come back and do do the homestead type thing and they were that. trying to do what everybody's doing today. Yeah, and and that didn't work for you know various reasons. That's not anything we need to talk about on this podcast. But anyway, I remember a conversation with my mom talking about the difference between whole wheat bread and white bread and why we couldn't have white bread. Yeah. Okay. And basically, she said because well, all the good stuff, all the vitamins in are in the wheat germ, and when they White flour doesn't have that. They take that out and they throw it away and they have to enrich it. That's why we have enriched white flours. We're putting all these vitamins and nutrients back into the flour after we already took them out from the germ. Right. So, okay, I get that. Now, I I kind of understood that, you know, that when you're refining stuff like that, you're taking out all the vitamins and minerals. But as I'm growing up, I'm thinking, okay, well, the science says vitamins are vitamins. So what difference does it make if it's a natural vitamin A source or if it's enriched with vitamin A? Sure. And there for a while, I thought, well, hell, it's enriched. It must be better. Yeah. I'm getting a better source of vitamins. There's more. Mm-hmm. And I, it seems like almost the opposite is true, that all those enriched vitamins and minerals that they put into our food Yes, technically we're getting over 100% of the USDA recommended daily allowance, which, I mean, you can probably tell me how much of BS of the number that is. Well, I can tell you for vitamin D, <laughs> it's uh, off by a factor of 10. So, Just, yeah. If you need vitamin D, go outside. Go outside, yeah. But what I'm saying is, like, are the minerals they're putting in as, quote, enriched minerals, are they bioavailable? at all or are we just bypassing those through our bodies well it's interesting so for fo- let's use folic acid as an example so folate comes from usually from leafy green vegetables foliage right? okay. where we get folate so what, what is it of, it's one what, of the b vitamins what's it critical for 
Oh man. I mean, for a ton of things. Life. Yeah. I mean, your whole methylation and transsulfuration pathway requires B vitamins to even work. That went right over my head. But think about like all those things your liver does. If you didn't have B vitamins, you couldn't do it. So they're, they're vital amino, they're vital, meaning we can't, we can't manufacture them. We've got to take them in. So mo. Folic acid isn't really what our body uses. Our body uses folate, and actually, we have to methylate it over. Four, we have to methylate it four times into a methyl tetrahydrofolate for it to be bioavailable. So, folic acid is not the same as folate. So, folic okay. is what we fortify food with, and about sixty percent of the population has some genes that make that difficult for some people. Those are called the MTHFR genes. So there's two MTHFR genes. And if you, you know, this is getting way deep in the weeds, it can be complicated. Um, but if you have that, that gene SNP, which is single nucleotide polymorphism, it could make it so that folic acid is harder for your body to process. Okay. So this is just an example of how going back to, we can't really do it better than what nature has done. We, and I think it's hubris for us as humans to go, aha, I can make a better, I can make a better insulin than humans can make, right? Which is why the price of insulin is so high right now is we're using insulin analogs, right? Which is a better than human insulin, meaning it works faster than human insulin. What does it allow the diabetic to do? Well, eat, them more to crap. eat their cake and keep their blood sugars down because it works faster. So you can drink that soda and I mean, not that you would want to die. It's like that scene in, um, what is it? Like the, the end of the world movies where they go in and they eat all the food and then they go and drink this stuff that makes them throw up so they can go eat more. Oh, Oh, that's a, what's that in the hunger Games series? Yeah. I couldn't think of that. Yeah, they do. It's a big scene where they're yeah. eating all that fancy food, and that, I mean, even wasn't that food. something the Greeks would do too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That actually had basis that really in real worked, life. Worked well yeah. for their culture, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so a lot of the stuff we're fortifying with is industrial forms of vitamins that I, might not be bioavailable or might not even be best form for you. I think I rem- that's the, one of the questions I asked you when we went to Wichita. You were randomly walking around, and we were talking about vitamins and yeah. cereal, and I'd asked you where did that come from, and you're like, well where does it come from like does yeah. anybody really know where do all those where does the folic acid come from the, the, does... when it's enriched with vitamins and minerals where do the vitamins and minerals come from well you know interestingly some of them are derived from corn imagine yeah. that <laughs> yeah vitamin c a lot of vitamin c and in, in fortified foods is from corn derived vitamin c i bet a lot of i bet a lot of stuff comes and that i mean then, then yeah, corn... even if it is available is it worth absorbing into your body and and how much different effect on the body does and this is something we talked about earlier about like molecules and without naming a specific molecule just a molecule that affects the body like if a bond is five degrees off or if it's a mirrored molecule like there's there's a left hand and a right hand molecule and they can be chemically identical yeah just mirrored and they can have completely different effects on the body that we don't even understand why yeah the isomers or the enantiomers yeah it's pretty it the biochemistry of the body is amazing all fascinating it's my favorite machine i think bodies are awesome yeah they really are cool but but yeah the 
Well, yeah, why are we fortifying food? And, and you know, like it's funny, you brought up white bread. Um, I was at that dinner for um, – it was a, it was the um, – where the Land Institute was the hosting this dinner at Eldersley Farm. It's a local farm next to us, and it, they, they make some of the most amazing meals. And the we were having this bread that was a sourdough bread that took 48 hours to rise, and it was made with that Kernza grain – and it was this rich, dense, crusty bread that was unlike anything you would find in a store. And we were eating with a guy who had grown up in England, and he was talking about how the I think it was maybe his family said that that they were they were so poor that they had to make their own bread, and what he yearned for was the store bought white bread because <laughs> he associated that with wealth. Well, right, yeah. And so, you know, he remembers, oh, we have to eat this crusty, dark, and heavy bread. I and, said it earlier in the microwave oven. I think there's a whole generation like that. that yeah. So that, so it's interesting to him in his in his cultural background and mindset and going through the Great Depression or whatever they went through, he knew they couldn't afford to go buy Wonder Bread. And Wonder right. Bread was the thing that he was like, that's the pinnacle of bread. And I look at that and go, that is junk. Isn't right. it crazy right. that when you're, when you're at your poorest... Yeah. The thing that your body and your brain has the will to do is to make bread that doesn't suck for you. Yeah, and and you know, it's interesting the way we make bread in the United States is bread rises in like 30 minutes, 30 minutes to an hour and we're baking it. And we don't have time to wait. We're not waiting 2 days for bread to rise. Doesn't ferment. Doesn't right, we're adding yeast to it whereas the, the We old... add yeast and we add sugar to make the yeast work faster. Right. You know, if you took any almost any bread yeah. that we bake here and took it to France, they would call it a dessert. You could not legally call it bread because of French bread law. French bread law says if you put any sugar in it, it's dessert. Yeah. It's a dessert and it's not bread. Yeah. Yeah. And why, why are we pumping high fructose corn syrup into Roman meal? Why is that even on the label? I think the fermentation process of sourdough bread makes your body way more likely to digest all of that gluten. And oh, yeah. It's nasty from eating gluten. You don't have the problems. Well, and I, and I don't even know if it's gluten. It might be you – know, I have this theory that people who have what's called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is meaning they don't have the celiac disease, they don't have the genetic disease, celiac, but yet they get sick when they eat bread. So we, we lump those in a category called non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Is there even a remote possibility that that is like – herbicide or pesticide reaction or toxicity? It's a good question. because, And here's the observation that I've made is those same patients can say, you know, when I go to Europe and eat the bread, I don't have any problem it's at all. It's fermented. It's the same to so, me as like right, um, they're, milk. They're, yeah, they're made. So, so you, then you then you have to say, well, okay, what's the difference? So, in Europe, they're air fermenting their bread for three, sometimes five days. So they don't add yeast. The yeast just comes from the air. It's just naturally attracted in. <laughs> and they don't need to feed the yeast with a bunch of sugar. They don't need to feed the yeast. So, so the yeast is living off of the fructans that are in the grain, which is sugar that's in bread, and they're breaking those fructans down so that when you eat the bread. In Europe, maybe it's that you have a fructan sensitivity. Or, you know, to your point, maybe it's a glyphosate. Yeah. You know, and then we're not supposed to put glyphosate on wheat, right? But yet I've, I've understood that they spray glyphosate on wheat af either after harvest or maybe as a – to well, when you they, harvest they, and you go to out. To dry it out. You, go, you harvest and you go out and you, you know, maybe take your wheat straw and then maybe you go out like six months or three, three weeks later and you got to till it all up and then you got to let the weeds grow and then you got to spray the weeds. Yeah. Yeah, so they might so not be residual. technically spraying the wheat plant while it's growing. Right. It'll kill it. 
because it'll kill the wheat, but they do spray those chemicals in the fields Beforehand. and the chemical stays in the soil because, I mean, a lot of these chemicals, let's face it, they're kind of forever chemicals. Well, so, I mean, yeah. if you read the label, Roundup's gone from your soil and uh, the same as antibiotics in cows. This is the same way. So I think a lot of that is not coming from being sprayed on the wheat. It's coming from the fact that we don't we don't talk about the fact that the soil that's in the field before the wheat gets there. Yeah, that's a good point. Is where you're junk comes from well and i and i actually heard a theory that that's why we're having we have so many peanut allergies is that peanuts are grown they typically grow peanuts in cotton fields and cotton fields are heavily sprayed heavily sprayed heavily sprayed with everything and that the the dirt you know again the unspoken secret is that it's not the peanuts that's the problem the whole reason i think about gluten sensitivity is up until 10 years ago there were some celiacs in the world that couldn't eat wheat yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. But it's like all of a sudden, 10 years ago, 50% of the country is sensitive to gluten. Bullshit. Right. That didn't happen overnight. Exactly. Yeah. Your, our genetics don't change that fast. We don't, we don't have a drift in our genes in a generation. So there's something else at work. It's not just Meaning celiac. It's got to be environmental. There's something environmental that we're doing to our food because, I mean, the link is there. Yeah. So what's the link that's there? I mean, and... For me, that points back to production practice yeah. and chemical use on the land to grow the food. Possibly, yeah. Like, uh, we I mean, who's going to investigate that and actually draw that conclusion? We are. Yeah, I mean, those are the questions we we need we, to These ask. people are yeah. asking that that people don't ask. Like, I was surprised when I asked you that question, and you were calling like, "Hmm, I don't know, not for sure," because yeah. because people assume that that people know the answers to all these questions, so nobody does ask. I was reading a book uh, book the other day about um, about about gardening, and the guy talked a lot about how he gardened so different than everyone else, and the reason he started gardening that way was because, in his mind, the way you learned how to do things was you look at how everybody else is doing it, uh-huh. and you see what they're not doing, and you try that. Yeah, and see why it doesn't work, rather than going and saying these things don't work, these things don't work. Without so you're trying investigating them. new things, investigating yeah. the negatives necessarily. You yeah. know, try it. So ask the questions. Who's asking them? Who's going to do these studies? I don't know. Yeah. Well, and I think again, I think it's about educating the individual, right? Through through the power of podcasting, through the power of you know getting more doctors clued into what regenerative and uh, fu- you know, functional integrative medicine looks like. So we can begin thinking about these problems. And then as we make a better consumer, right. So they're actually asking, Hey, where is this beef coming from? Like, you know, my patient said, Oh, you know, I asked at whole foods about this grass fed. He goes, well, it's grass fed, but it's grain finished. And from New Zealand probably. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah who, I mean, who knows where it comes from? Like I'm, I remember Joel Salatin talking about how we, we take chickens and we ship them over to China to be slaughtered, put on styrofoam plates, wrapped in cellophane, and shipped back. And it's like, why are we doing that? It's somebody's making a lot of money doing it. That's <laughs> yeah. Somebody's making a lot of money doing and it, and somebody yeah. is being exploited too in the process. Yeah, they're yeah probably That's, right. They're doing it because the labor's cheaper there. You said something really interesting about making a better consumer. I think that's what like this whole thing is about. Because if the consumer is not asking for the product. The farmer and the rancher isn't going to be able to provide it. And right. you are in a great place to help create better consumers because people trust you when you talk about their food. Yeah. And people don't necessarily trust farmers when we talk about their food because we're farmers. We're not doctors. And doctors yeah. right now have an interesting dilemma because because they have all these sick people and all these 
opportunities to do that. And I think it's pretty awesome that you're, well, you're taking that opportunity to teach. Yeah, to I mean, teach. My, my goal is to work myself out of a job. If I'm doing my job right, you don't need me. Yes. Or you need me less. Yeah. And that's what the medical field should be. It shouldn't be a trap of continued treatment. Like, you know, like the self-manufactured diabetes, obesity epidemic that has created, what? what's the percentage? 20% of the people in this country are type 2 diabetic or pre-diabetic and need insulin? So greater, greater than 40% right now are pre-diabetic. 40% are pre-diabetic. Yes. So, so about every other person you meet is either diabetic or on their way to it. Well, there's four of us in this room. So, so. <laughs> there's there's odds that two of us, there's good odds that one of us for sure. I right. know I've been there. It, I've been on I've been yeah. on that. I've been on that page before 5 years ago probably to the point where I yeah. wasn't my body and my health absolutely. Yeah, and, th- and this is one reason we measure glucose and insulin fasting in almost everybody is we want to find it we want to find that insulin resistance signal before it becomes diabetes. Right. Right. I mean, you're, you're wanting to figure out problems on your property. You know, you're looking at water very carefully so that you don't have to run into a drought later on where you can't figure out where you're going to get water from. Right. Well, so you're think you've got to be thinking ahead. And so doctors need to be thinking that too. It's like, okay, well, how, I, if 40% of people are walking with prediabetes, I need to find out who that 40% is and start making a change. But it doesn't seem like any of your colleagues are with you on that. Your colleagues are like, well, we'll just, insulin's expensive. We need to work to try to bring down the cost of insulin. So that's where the consumer thing comes into play. And right. I was going to ask this. So, like, as a friend, as a person to your people, when you hear your friends inevitably come to you and complain because they had a horrible experience at the doctor and they didn't get what they wanted done and they blah, 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 blah. Right. I try to remind my friends or my people that I talk to that your doctor is somebody you're going to for a business. So when you go in, have a plan and have a goal in mind and go in and say, this is what I want. This is why I'm here. This is what I need. Rather than coming in and saying, I don't want this anymore. I don't want to feel this headache anymore. I don't want to do this. This food makes me sick. Instead of looking at all these, this is bad. What do you want? And then find a doctor that will work with you yeah. to get to that place rather than trying to to fit into a system that isn't giving you what you want. Well, and, and I have a lot of sympathy for, for the doctors. You're still practicing under an insurance model because I know what that I feels like. I can imagine and it's, that. It's, a, it's, it's demoralizing. I mean, it really, really is tough. I mean, physician burnout is at an all-time high. Physician suicide's high. Um, I mean, I, I, Hamster I, I, on a wheel. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to friends of mine that I went to residency with and they're like, I don't see myself doing this in another 10 years. And I'm like, well, we're going to not have doctors. Like surely kids don't want to get into this now, you know? Yeah, I know. And people say, so I'm thinking about going to medicine. What are you thinking? I'm like, well, I don't know. I'd, I'd count those costs real carefully. One of my best friends is is an ER nurse and she loves her job and she's thought about, you know, doing life flight stuff. And she's, brilliant and i i asked her the other day i said you should go back to school and she's like no i can make way more money being a nurse and have way less stress and responsibility and headaches because i don't have yeah. all the overhead costs yeah so you you go to school for four years and then you go to med school for four years and then residency for three years up to seven years depending on what you're doing and and all that while you're delaying your earning potential you're also delaying when you can start saving you're delaying your retirement you're racking up student loan interest quarter, yeah, quarter million dollars average now is what students are coming out of med school with, and and now you know, and you're and then you're put into the grinder. You I know? think a twenty twenty one med school grad will still be paying on med school debt in twenty sixty one. 
It's crazy. Well, if you do yeah. it right and you do things like that in the medical field, right, and you get in with some the right people, you can get a lot of school paid for. But that doesn't help when you get out into the world and it's a grinder. Right. It doesn't help. Yeah. So I, I do. I have a lot of sympathy for my colleagues, and and I guess you know I hope that they, I hope that they, they find that path that helps them find more value in their work and brings back that, the dignity that patient. Physician relationship. Hopefully. That's. That patient to physician relationship in the seven and a half minute, yeah. Let's call it Obamacare barrier. Yeah, that's that's something that we really ought to work on trying to change. And we got to wrap this up, Doc. Yeah. So, what are some what are some questions or some pointers that you could give to our listeners of ways they could talk to their doctor in that seven to seven and a half minutes that they're going to get with them to try to get better health guidance. Oh man, that's or or is it tough. just or is it just ditch that guy and be, find somebody yeah. like you? Be a better consumer and be a better consumer. Find a doctor who will talk to you about diet and lifestyle. Who won't who won't give you pill for problem? Find a doctor who's actually done some. Who who find a doctor who continues to be a lifelong learner. Find a doctor who continues to read the research. Who continues to be involved in what's developing. Find someone who's passionate about what they do. That has that's purpose driven. That's going to be the doctor you want to you want to hang on to. So I don't I don't know. And life's too short to spend with a doctor that doesn't do that for you. And and over time, maybe those doctors will ask the question, "Why isn't anybody coming to me?" That's just the same with any other any yeah. other field. Like capitalism works if you let it. Right? Yeah, it does. I'm a big yeah. believer in capitalism. Yeah. Awesome, good stuff. All right. Well, where can we get a hold of you, Doctor Jeff? Where do you uh, um, where do you want to send traffic to? Yeah, so prayerhealthandwellness dot com. If you want to find us there, that usually gets you anywhere. Um, and yeah, well, like I said, we're in we're in Wichita, Kansas. Come by the office and say hi sometime. Any social media email address you want me to put out? Uh, I'm on Twitter as at Jeff Davis MD, but <laughs> we're not I'm, a Twitter generation. I'm probably too political on Twitter, so I don't, too I, I, political. Yeah, I hesitate giving that one out, but that's I'm I'm fine. That's what Twitter's for, Doc. That's like what Twitter's I, for. I have yeah. no filter on Twitter. Like if you I just know. want my ranch stuff, yeah. like Facebook, yeah. you know, Instagram, fine. If you want more unfiltered me where I go harass <laughs> people like NCBA and politicians, you can come follow me on Twitter. Yeah. Probably not gonna respond. I don't ever read comments. I just do that for entertainment and stress relief. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's right. That's what Twitter is for me. I can get to follow like a few physicians and scientists that I want to hear from. But yeah, well, Sean Baker's a good follow. There's there's some good follows on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, there's. Some, oh, I mean, tw- I think Twitter has an opportunity to be this transformative place where conversations can can happen. And you know, the problem is they need to let them happen instead of canceling everybody. So, but I'm also I'm as big a believer in capitalism as I am in free speech. There you go. I think, you know, well, Joe Rogan says it all the time, and I think he says it best when he says, the way to combat bad speech is with better speech. Yes. Like, we don't need to be canceling people. We don't need to be deplatforming people. Make a better argument. Make a better argument. Exactly. And yeah. if you can't make a better argument, if your arguments don't stand up, maybe you're bullshit. <laughs> maybe your idea is not good. I mean, if you can't, if your <laughs> argument can't stand on its own, if you cannot defend your argument without having to silence the other party, do you have an argument? I love it. Well, thank you for having me on. This has been fun. It was awesome to talk to you today. That yeah. time flew by. Yeah, yeah. It was a great morning and really, uh, really enjoyed the time we spent together. Appreciate you coming down, Doc, and appreciate you doing this. Thank you.
All right, guys. Enjoy the rest of your week.